getting a pilot's license would be badass. It'd be really cool. Helicopter or plane, or doesn't matter. I don't know. I've, I go back and forth on helicopter and plane. I would love a helicopter. Helicopter would be Isn't incredible. Is it the same license? Yeah, no. I assume not. No. Not even close. Definitely not. Two, two like completely different yeah. flight. Like, it, I Theories, mean, it's wildly yeah. different. You're getting your pilot's license, plane, yeah. small plane. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, man. I'm still scared to ride with my dad. My dad got his, and he bought a plane. And I'm like, I'm not going to ride with you for a long time. You need a lot more years under your belt before I go. <laughs> how, how, how many hours does he have? I don't know, honestly, but he has his pilot license now for maybe a year. Like, Oh, so it's fresh. It's I didn't fresh even know well. your dad had one. Yeah. 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 He, he bought a, I bought a plane. And I was looking at some hangars close by. So just a single prop. Like. Yeah, he just bounces up, goes and flies around, lands, and goes to get some lunch, turns around, <laughs> awesome. flies back home. That's awesome. What was the motivation for him? Retirement, just want to do something cool. Want to, want, want to learn something again, you know. Like after like you know, owning your own business his whole life, and like yeah. now stopping, and my brother take over, and I just wants to learn something new. And he's like, I he told me the other day, he's like, I haven't studied since like high school, like actual like <laughs> sat there and studied the report or anything like that. Cause you know, like college. But he's enjoying the whole like playing thing. What's yeah. your motivation? Getting your pilot's license. I'm curious. Um, so always been something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little bit of a challenge aspect to it. There's the geeky nerd engineer mm-hmm. like keeping something up in the air kind of aspect that fits your brain well oh yeah absolutely <laughs> but for like going through this exercise like and i haven't been this uncomfortable in a long time like high levels of stress over extended periods of time and you know pushing me way outside of my comfort zone uh going through the the training i see a lot of parallels with our guys that learn how to shoot long range mm-hmm. so that that same kind of ethos there and the pilot world owns it like they've got that button down really nice mm. like there's there's a lot that we can learn from that do you think pilots make good long-range shooters as well we've had a lot come through hmm. they're very they pay attention to a lot of details so i would say absolutely they do interesting i wonder if there's some kind of technology too you can like take crossover like you're saying like Trying to keep a plane in the air is kind of similar to keeping a bullet in, in flight, you know? Oh, there's there's a lot of the crossover. I mean, it's all about performance, environment, um, checklist, mm-hmm. process. Yep. Like it is it absolutely parallels. So I know quite a few uh, pilots, a lot of pilots, through the family, through friends, through hunting, hunting guides and outfits mm-hmm. and all that stuff. They have a very similar mind to a long-range shooter. It mm-hmm. seems, I mean, like, I would feel like they'd cross over extremely well yeah. in a long-range yeah. shooting process, checklist. But you know what's funny is so do our tree hunters. Really? Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah, process, right? Gear-oriented, gear uh, perfection-oriented. Mm-hmm. Like, how many people that shoot archery don't just go all in on, I have to be able to freaking put that yeah. arrow in the center every time? Like, the, I, I don't think that it's hard to succeed at. I don't think that... Success is easy in the archery space. It's so easy to make a mistake. And I think that that drives a lot of people to put the extra time in, the extra work to develop the skill and proficiency. So I, like, I think it's the same thing with long range. It's a really good point. That mentality is absolutely It's the best feeling in the world, man. Like, to execute a good arrow flight. Oh, it's the best. I would assume it's the same way with long range shooting. I, well, Brady's the, the guy for that. Brady was the dedicated archery, everything, yeah. and now he's just transitioned all of that into long-range shooting. Yeah. yeah, I was the guy who literally weighed out every single arrow, and I was upset if it didn't weigh exactly the same. I wanted to be exact clones, weigh the fletchings, weigh the glue even on there to make it all perfect. Like, I put I put new strings and cables on a bow night before last, yeah. and then uh, yesterday mid-afternoon I went out and I 
you know, shot pins in. Everything was tuned, good to go. I shot pins in, so I was shooting broadheads out to 100. And uh, I sent Neville a picture because my last two arrows of the day were at 100 yards, um, you know, in a pop can. And he was like, why, why the hell are you shooting pop cans? And I was like, I like that audible feedback. <laughs> and that's, that's probably what you guys, long-range shooters, get used to, right? Shooting steel shooting or whatever steel. it is, you know, that audible, if you can't hear it, probably not, yeah. probably not at that point. I don't know how far out there you get, but... I'm not a long-range shooter by any means. I'm more of an archery guy. You're an archery guy. Well, yeah. you're a long-range shooter. You just haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, yeah that's it, which is why I'm <laughs> excited to go. have you here today. Yeah. yeah. Trail's going to convert now, too. Yeah, I might, I might do. I think I, I can definitely see the intrigue. So yeah. we, we appreciate you coming in. We ought to do introductions probably before we get say, going. Yeah. Yeah. So we have Aaron Davidson from Gunworks today. The Gunworks guy. We appreciate you stopping in today in Vegas. It was Absolutely. really cool that you... I appreciate you, uh, the invite. Yeah, really cool that you're able to make that happen. Um, we always try to, you know, get people in that we can have a podcast. We, we're super excited that you're here in person. So glad to make that work. And to squeeze it in, like right in the start of hunting season too. Like, yeah. yeah. How schedules nice. are going to work out. Like, Yeah, when we were kicking emails back and forth, I was like, is he going to be available? <laughs> like the end yeah. of September, in I August? There's this thing that people think I hunt a lot. I don't. Yeah. I sit at a desk a lot. Yeah, yeah we, it's we funny. Do we, do, we, yeah, we just helped. <laughs> we went up to help a good friend of ours on an antelope hunt on Thursday. And he's, he's new to hunting, but he's such a good guy. He's known the guy, Chris Porter, who helped me build this business since the beginning. It's one of his really good friends. So we went up to help him. We met a, a couple guys in a bar and they saw the truck and things and they're like, oh, go hunt. I'm like, yeah, that's us. You know, we somehow were lucky enough to be the guys. It's like, man, that must be just the best. How much do you hunt? Like, honestly, I mean, a, a good amount, but, like, not that much. I mean, we sit at a desk a lot. Like, that's the majority of <laughs> Not as much as we thought we were going exactly. to. <laughs> not as much as I was hoping to do getting mm -hmm. into the hunting space. But, yeah, it's just, it's a lot of desk job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now it's time to go hunting, so we're almost there. This would be a good kickoff. So yeah, will, maybe yeah. some, like, last-minute tips and tricks. And We are right there knocking on the door. I told Brady before we started this, I said, you're going to have to, like, give me the – you know, you have to carry me on this because I'm, I'm not a long range guy at all. I don't, I probably, sh I shoot less than probably 10 rounds a year, which is a little bit embarrassing, but I shoot thousands of arrows, but not many, not many uh, yeah. rounds through rifle. So, well, that's the challenge. Yeah. You know, if you, if you look at our business, that's what my business is basically founded on is how do I help you mm -hmm. be successful without diving in like you mm -hmm. and understanding everything. So you got to cross that bridge. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you guys have done an amazing job of that because that is me. That's me as a person is I probably shoot. I shoot a lot more than mm -hmm. trail, but I, I don't even want to get my mind yeah. into the world that Brady's in because yeah, don't have, you know, I don't have the time. I mean, I could if I were to sacrifice somewhere else, but I'm not willing yeah. to sacrifice somewhere else. It's to do what Brady does. Brady and I live, live two very different lives, family life for me and you know, his hunting single. life, yeah, single shooting life. So it's like very different, you know? And I just, I'm not willing to sacrifice because I see what he does and I have so much respect for it. I'm like, man, I just, I couldn't sacrifice to do that. But then I have Gunworks, companies like Gunworks and yep. you who have made it just incredibly easy for a guy like me to do. Well, think, go hunts the same way. Yeah. Like that's what yeah. we're selling is the convenience and the ability to take a little bit and do a lot. Mm -hmm. and then offer more layers you can uncover more you can get deeper it's like the features in your app you like you can start with this mm -hmm. and then you can just learn a little bit more get a little mm -hmm. more access get a little more capability maybe extend you know a season like we extend a range mm -hmm. same thing yeah. yeah i was thinking the other day too Lorenzo. it's like gunworks and go hunt 
almost very similar in a sense that we, I agree. They've created an eco, a full on ecosystem from rifles, rifle accessories. You got optics, you got shooting schools, Range educational finder. content, all that stuff's like, you know, a full ecosystem. All of it meshes really, really well mm-hmm. together to make yourself more proficient in hunting, going on the field and shooting. And like Gohan does the research. Yeah. We got the e-commerce store, we got the content. You know, maps in the field. It's a you know 365 day product. I think both those both the companies are I agree. very similar in that sense. I, I I've known you for when did I go to your school? I went to your that was a long time ago. I it met was. your twin boys and they were still young. Oh yeah, that yeah. was a while ago. It's got to be eight years, right? Yeah, I that's think. what I was I was trying to think today driving into the office. It's a long time ago. Just got to think back how many big bucks got killed. Yeah, the between <laughs> yeah between them. <laughs> but that was and even back then, you and I would talk. It is it is very similar. You know, the two in very different ways, but they're similar businesses, business models, what we're selling. And what's interesting to me is you have like these gear, these apparel gear companies, right? And just systems is so synonymous with apparel gear, right? It's all what system are you doing? Mm-hmm. How many, you know, layering Lighters. systems, all this stuff. Well, what you guys sell is a system. Which yeah. we, what we sell is a system. It's all a process of a system. It's just how deep do you want to get into it? How much of it are you going to use? What are you using it for? Yeah. Right. It's all, all the same stuff, but it takes a little bit more brain power for somebody to put together like, oh, this is, you know, Gunworks, Go Hunt, they're all systems too, you know? Mm-hmm. For guys like me that, you know, are less familiar, can you give me like a, just like a recap of Gunworks and like you, and, and just like, a, <laughs> I, me, I, you probably I, can't I wrap it up. Guys, in a bu- tell me how long you want it to be. <laughs> yeah. I don't care, man. I got all the time yeah, in the world. So I'm, I'm down here, but all I, history. I am curious, just like your background, like getting to know you a little bit better and then just the kind of the history of Gunworks, how it started. Yeah. How did you dream this thing up? So the short, the short answer to how it started was I got tired of digging ditches. How's that? You were, you, you were digging ditches. So I went to, uh, when I started college, I had a family. Mm-hmm. I was married. I had a daughter and started college, uh, went to college to get an engineering degree, started with electrical and said, not for me, switched to mechanical. It's like, this is, this is right up my alley. I was a car guy, had hot rods, had tons of hot rods, Impalas and Camaros and Chevys and Cadillacs and really? all sorts of old cool stuff. And that was, that was my jam. I spent every hour of extra time either chasing girls or working on hot rods when I was in high school. My huh. man. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. Right? I never had a hot rod that I really used, so I had mm-hmm. to date girls that had cars, but it's kind of, it, it worked out. <laughs> so I get into college. I'm doing a business. I'm paying my way. Uh, Where'd you go to school? You, UW. University okay. Of gotcha. So I'm, I'm working in the summer doing a construction business, making enough money to pay my bills all year. Pay for school, pay for housing, living expenses, et cetera. That left me some time, you know, fall you know, spring, Laramie winters were cold. That's why all our kids are kind of born in a certain period of time, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, nothing else to do. So, so I get done Mid- with college, <laughs> kept that business going, mm-hmm. couldn't really get a job that I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in with, with this. I'm not going to big city. Didn't really want to leave Wyoming and just didn't have a lot of stuff available in Wyoming to do. So I just kept building that business, started working for BLM, state, um, some municipal business and it was growing, it was going good and, you know, building just a little bit of wealth and not wealth, but, but security. Mm-hmm. Same time. I'm still young, fearless. And I was into guns in college was I transitioned from cars and cars were expensive and I wasn't really using, I'd sell one and I could go buy a Remington and a Leopold, put it together, kit it, reload for it, make it shoot tight groups spend time at the range and it just I started getting into that um, that process 
end the challenge and really quickly got bored with just shooting a good group at 100. Mm-hmm. Like literally that gets boring really, really fast. And started thinking, well, wait a minute, I want to shoot a long ways. I want to actually be able to hit this target. I want to do it first shot. I, I pitched a, a business in an entrepreneurship class. I went in there, this guy's supposed to be this super genius. And I'm like, hey, look, I want to build this little calculator. I'm a nerd, I'm an engineer. I've got my, I've got my super calculator here and I can run my equations of motion on this calculator and I could put in all the parameters and hit enter and it'll tell me what to correct for. And so I pitched this to the class and the guy's like, oh, that's stupid. You know, mm. I shoot prairie dogs. If I, if I shoot, I just hold up and I, and I shoot again. I'm like, no, 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 you're not getting the point. The, yeah. It's the first shot, you know, being able to deliver that bullet where yeah. you want it to go. That, to me, is the ultimate challenge and should be the ultimate goal of anybody that's mm-hmm. a hunter, for sure. And so, like, that that passion grew there. And after a few years outside of college, running that business, I'm like, you know what? I can go down this path, and I think I can be successful. I can work hard. I can make this work. But it's not my passion like it's not something that like mm-hmm. gets me up it keeps me up mm-hmm. so i said let's do it i started i sold all my equipment sold my assets i owned my house had a hundred fifty thousand bucks i'm like i'm going for it so your I, wife I, on board uh, <laughs> i don't know if she would have told me if she wasn't you're like she's listen pretty, all this construction equipment like we're doing along. we're gonna yeah. sell it all we're gonna go all in on it i think on, i think i sold a... her really well that i i knew what i was doing but mm. no way yeah, <laughs> but those are just white lies, right? Exactly. No big deal. Exactly. Yeah. So I started that in 2005 and built through 2006. You know, we did software development. We did uh, worldwide sourcing, started an optics company, started Gunworks, you know, tr- tried to figure out where our niche was, developed some stock design, um, you know, put our sourcing together. We shipped our first complete system in 2007 in April. Hmm. So and then from there, we just grew and mm-hmm. and and it was gunworks from the beginning the name Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's what i remember yeah hmm. it's quite a process it's a lot you wrapped it up in a lot but there's a lot of details in there i'm sure that are like i mean how do you, you well, think about it when we started that you know there were people that would make ballistic turrets like leopold made mm-hmm. turrets on scopes for the army they would make this generic turret and everybody would use it if you look start looking back you can go all the way back to to uh world war ii times and they got ballistic turrets mm-hmm. you go all the way back into like some of the first rifle scopes Collis had a scope that had a, a kind of a dial range on it in 1910 go all the way back into uh civil war times they were sliding veneers to the yeah. to a range like like the concept of adjust for your range mm-hmm. and shoot has existed for a long time. I did not know that. Abs- that's, absolutely. That's really? And you even even go, Gunworks got the name or inspiration from the name because of the kind of that world traveling European hmm. that was colonizing the world. And they're like, well, while I'm down in Africa doing my work, I'm going to shoot some stuff. Mm-hmm. And they'd go to Holland and Holland and say, build me the ultimate. Mm-hmm. And they would put this kit together in a box. They would regulate the sights. Sights would flip out to 600 yards, you know. They'd have this killing machine, and they would take off on a world adventure, pull it out of the box, and, and tip stuff over. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's the concept of this out-of-the-box performance, this 1,000 yards out of the box. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's what the works part of Gunworks kind of points you towards the Continental and kind of pulls back into that heritage. All, that's the way everybody's done it forever. Yeah. What we did when we launched was we created a very 
transparent and simple system that would allow somebody that has no idea how ballistics work or even maybe how to shoot long range mm -hmm. to be able to mount a scope, go shoot data, and go through this process to get a true profile that fixed all these things that they had no idea were going on. And we would make this custom turret for every single customer. Now, so we'd sell the scopes and do that, but that we also would do that for our rifle systems mm -hmm. and turn key it for a guy. But the big companies, they didn't want to do that one on one. They just want to sell 10,000 to a distributor. Mm -hmm. yeah. yep. So we came in and completely disrupted the whole thing. And I'm like, three years, everyone will have to follow because this is how everybody wants to shoot. Mm -hmm. And now you look, everybody offers a custom ballistic turret. Because you have to. It's it's the it's the way. Uh, if you really hunt and you mm -hmm. get into hunting situations and you have any experience at all, you don't pull out a kestrel and start pushing the button to try to get your dope. Like that does not freaking work. Yeah. That will cost you. It, it gives you a good solution. Yeah. <laughs> it just takes a long time to do it. So everybody gets along with the BDC turret. Like if yeah. you dial the range now. The problem with that is you need more systems. So again, in 2011, we introduced the first rangefinder that had a real-time ballistic solver in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like nobody else had one. I mean, there was some stuff where they had curves and you pick a curve and try to fit it. So you got a 400 or 500 yard deal. When we launched that rangefinder, like we doubled maybe three times the effective range of the products that people were trying to put on the market. Yeah. And it measured temperature, it measured pressure, it did an incline correction, it did everything. And what it did was it would correct all the environmental conditions and the range for your BDC turret. So now you get all the ease of use of dial to 600 yards, mm -hmm. but the rangefinder says dial to 635, there's your correction for all your conditions. And everybody always complains, well, BDC turrets aren't accurate enough, they don't work. But they all, they miss this, this extra component of the shoot to range. Right. So again, stood the industry on its head in 2011. And then you go look at the smart scope thing that we did in 2017 and where that's going to push all the industry towards like we're interested in disrupting everything yeah. <laughs> like that's that's it. And and doing it, yeah. the idea behind that is how do we make the technology or the achievement or the access as as simple as uh, as low barrier as possible. Mm -hmm. Just like we talked about you and you mm -hmm. and your long range shooting. Like how can I make a product that I can use that you can use? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can, I can validate what you were talking about there. I bought your rangefinder when it first came out. Yeah. That's right around. I went, I think it was up to your school about a year after it came out, something like that. Anyway, that put us a decade. Yeah. yeah. So, so I bought that and then I bought your Revic internal scope when yep. that came out. So I, everything you're talking about, yeah, I, I, it validated everything for me. What we equate long, not, I shouldn't say long range, what we equate range to or effective range to is just more success. Yeah. If you, if your effective range is 400, you're going to be more successful than it was at 300. If it's 500, then you'll be more successful than it was at 400. So every time you can get an effective range, uh, um, you know, progress, you're actually, you're increasing your odds of yeah. success monumentally yep. as it goes. Right. And I mean, that's, look what, at Brady, that's what it's example. all about, whether it's gear yeah. or it's training or whatever, it, that's what the whole thing's all about. Yeah. Who came up with the uh, thousand yards out of the box? That's me. 
That's <laughs> <laughs> that's a stroke of marketing genius. I mean, yeah. you have to have you have to have the product. We to trademarked back. it. We've actually had to ask people to not use that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to have the product to back that up. But in terms of, uh, I remember you know hearing that and seeing it and being like, okay, this yeah. is a, this is a different. I can tell you, this is a different thing from the outside looking in. I can tell you why Gunworks is so successful. Is because you do have a true engineer, but he's a marketer as well. Mm-hmm. You can tie those two things together. See yeah. Then you can come up with yeah. all sorts of all kinds bullshit of, yeah. that makes it sound cool. <laughs> if you got an engineer who's also a marketer, it's going to the moon. But, but jumping back to like you're saying, like the first range fund you guys came out with, my dad and I were early adopters to that system because you're saying talking about how hard it was back in the day to actually shoot long range and yep. do it effectively and quickly. Like we used to have the old PDAs with like X yep. ball on it. Like trying to sit there and calculate it all, had the cosine indicator yep. on the gun, like looking at all that, entering it all in there, and like that took time. And like even shooting prairie dogs, it was like very difficult to yeah. like get a range, entered all and that it, in there and spit it out. And then the first range finder, like yeah, it's you know, it was, it was bigger than a normal range finder, but it did everything you needed to do it. And we carried it around all the time. I go look at that wall of big bucks in your office. Mm-hmm. My guess is fifty percent of those happened pretty fast. All of them happen. <laughs> the animals don't give you time. That's yeah, the thing. No. Is like so. So we were just talking about, or I was just talking about, effective range and being more successful. The other part of that is time it takes to execute a shot, right? Target acquisition and executing the shot. Mm-hmm. Animals don't give you time, yep. and they're always going to be further than you would like them to be. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to make a 150 yard shot, but how often does that happen? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. If you can have range finder spits out a solution that quickly and it's grabbing all the atmospheric conditions, like boom, sign me up. Like, yeah, that's done. worth any price. It is to make it. Not only simpler, but like more ethical at the same time, because I can make that best one-shot kill. Exactly, by having the tools I need and having the practice to put into it to make that shot. Yep, and that and when those when, when the type of confidence you get from that and type of success, you know, magnitude that you get from that, you don't care how big it is. Like when it first came out, when nobody cared how big it yeah. was then, it's obviously a lot smaller. You know what's now, crazy? What's crazy is we introduced the BR4, the small. Everybody wants small vertical, yeah. right? And every BR2 owner, like old school owner, that gets one of the BR4s is like, man, can you can you make it sideways? Can, yeah, you, make, so used can you make it a little bigger? It's, it was easier to hold it steady. Like, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I found that every time you give the market what they want, <laughs> that was the wrong choice. Yeah, what actually, you need to do is anticipate what they need and go that right. Yeah. Good example, first focal plane versus second focal plane. Here's a battle that I chose to fight. It took me almost two years to win it internally, and because you got to get your sales team on board, because they're mm-hmm. the ones that make the movement, right? Yep. They're the ones that overcome the objections when a customer's like, "No, I want this second focal plane reticle or this." This this is a this is a battle that like we've staked everything on. We don't sell second focal plane scopes, and there's people that. that will not buy our gun because we won't sell them this second focal plane here's, scope. Here's something. Can you, can you and Brady dive into this? Because yeah, like, I, get this, I, I get this all the people time. People ask me. People, I, people I, will DM me, which scope do I want? First focal, second focal? And yeah, I'm like, I don't I, know. DM Brady. I don't, I don't know. So let's that short look. answer. You want a first focal plane, but if anybody but me designed the reticle, it's going to suck. That's so, the short answer. So dive into it. What's the difference between a first yeah, and second? Yeah. And go second. ahead. You know the first focal, second focal. So, so to go back and forth between it, like my dad's second focal only. He likes that small small fine crosshair but for me for a hunter like i want to be able to like a first focal plane when i'm adjusting it like i can use all the subtensions no matter what like always middle is middle no matter what it is i can dope to it but then if i need to like oh i need to go 
up da, some Dumb it way, dumb it way yeah, down. You're already, dumb you're, it way down. You're, you're already, already over my goal. You're already yeah, at like step two or three beyond. You already that's my goal. Dumb it way down. I need it. I need it. Rifle scope, right? Yeah. You got you got an objective lens. Yep. Then you go back. You've got a focusing lens. About in the middle, you've got all your turrets. Mm -hmm. That's about where your first focal plane ends up. And then next are your erector tube and and magnification lenses. Mm -hmm. Some small lenses that move back and forth based on the rotation of your magnification ring. That turns a sleeve inside the erector that just drives those. And they'll move this much inside the scope. So when you crank that, you're moving some big time. Glass on the inside. On the inside. Then the next thing about where your magnification ring is, is the second focal plane. And then after the second focal plane, now you have your ocular lenses. Okay. So you've got this set of magnification lenses in the middle of the scope. Your first focal plane sits on the front of it. The second focal plane sits on the back of it. So if we think about what that the effect of that is the first focal plane reticle is on the same side of the magnification lenses as your target. Okay. So when you change your magnification, the target and the reticle are going to get bigger and smaller Mm. together. So the relative size of the reticle and the target stay consistent. When you go to the back side of that, now you've got this reticle back here that's right in front of your ocular lenses. Mm-hmm. So your eye is looking at a magnified version of that reticle. And then on the other side of that is your magnification. And so now when you change magnification, that reticle stays the same and the target changes in size. Now for long range shooting, I think hold over stupid, so I'm not even gonna talk about it. So what I'm gonna talk about is wind hold. So for wind hold reticle, right, you've got a minute of angle reticle. Mm -hmm. If you have a first focal plane, when you change the magnification, the target gets smaller, the reticle gets smaller. But that reticle subtension, the actual amount of angle displacement that has stays the same. So if you turn the power down and you hold three minutes or three marks on the reticle, it equals three minutes still. Mm -hmm. And that's important because let's say you're shooting Let's say you've got a little patch of open in some buck brush on a, a 220 inch deer that you think is gonna pop out. And you have this one opportunity to see where he comes out and to get a shot off, right? And you're trying to get a little bit more field of view. So you're only five, 600 yards. So instead of zooming up to 25 power, where now your view is so small, you can't maybe find and get on the target fast enough. So you turn the power down, say 13 to 15, right? So you've got this lower power. Now you've got this big field of view. You still got enough reticle. It's still zoomed in enough. You can aim at the animal, fine. But you can see him, acquire the target, get the shot off. Mm. So if you're shooting a second focal plane reticle, the part I forgot to tell you about, there's a 15 mile an hour crosswind. So you've got to hold two and a half, three minutes of wind for this shot. So you, you got a second focal plane reticle, you turn that power down, all of a sudden that one minute of angle becomes more like one and three quarter. Yeah, mm. that's where it's difficult. And so, so you okay. as a shooter, you, instead of holding three marks for three minutes, you'd be like, well, shit, it's going to be less than that. It's going to be a little more than half. So I'm just going to hold something over there or worse. It's a 220 inch buck. You're not even going to think about it. Mm-hmm. You're just going to hold three marks and shoot, shoot right off his chest. Yeah. And then he steps into the buck brush and he's gone forever. So the, the second focal plane, if you are a real hunter who gets in real hunting situations and hunts 
a little bit more than just once in a while, or even spends even a little bit more on hunting, you never want to lose something when you could have bought mm -hmm. success. Mm -hmm. And if you buy the first focal plane reticle now, when you crank that down to 15 power, three minutes is three minutes. You hold three minutes, he's dead. Yep. So here's, so you say, well, why would anybody buy a second focal plane? That's what I was literally just yep. going to follow up so, with. Exactly. So here's the problem. Every single person that has designed a first focal plane, and I shouldn't say every single per person. Uh, I've got a great friend over in Norway who is one of the most intelligent, um, uh, considerate, shooters and i've learned so much from this guy his, his he's got a youtube channel anybody that's interested you go to uh, thlr.no you search that on youtube and you'll pull up his channel he's got four or five hundred videos most of his videos he doesn't even talk in he's always been embarrassed about his accent and he communicates these things that blow my mind he is um hmm. he's one of the people that i really look up to he has designed some first focal plane reticles that are he gets it Mm -hmm. Right, they're a little busy, um, so I've I've taken some of that ethos and brought it into our design. So, if you if you make a first focal plane reticle visible at low magnification, like think about it. So you zoom out. Mm -hmm. If you make it thick enough that you can see it at low magnification, when you zoom in, the reticles get so thick yeah. that it just covers massive amounts of your target. Mm -hmm. But here's where everybody gets lost. And you either have you either have this engineer that isn't a user mm. or you have a marketing person who isn't an engineer. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or maybe, or maybe isn't an engineer or a user. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and these guys drive, develop and design. Mm -hmm. And guess what they're doing? They're asking the customer what they want. Yeah. Right. And the customer thinks that, you know, on a five to 25 power scope, he needs to be able to see the reticle at seven power. Bullshit. When have you ever shot in the lower third magnification range of your scope? Never. Sometimes all the way down. Right. Mm -hmm. I've shot all the way down. Yeah. Yeah. All the way down. Absolutely. But below half to all the way down. Mm -mm. I mean, off the top of my head, probably never. I mean, I, if I really it would take me a long time to think through it. But yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying because if you if you need wide field of view and you need low light performance and you need fast i'm all fast, the way fast, open yeah yeah go all the way down so if you have any small amount of logical you know thought you know experience capability you say look i don't have to divine design this reticle to work across the whole magnification range i'm gonna wipe my ass on the bottom half of the magnification range and i'm gonna design the reticle with subtensions and thicknesses that work from say mid power up so on a 5 to 25 you're saying somewhere around 12 13 power up to 25. now you get down to 12 13 you might start you might start losing some Mm -hmm. But in the 18 range, absolutely, you're right in the solid mm -hmm. amount. You get to 25, you're like, yeah, that's not covering too much. It's usable. right? So if you design with that idea in mind, and then down at the bottom, right, first focal plane scope, the center crosshair disappears, you design a reticle so that when you crank to the bottom, it's perfect for what you're doing, which is shoot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Offhand shoot. Yeah. Yep. So we've got a huge post. Like if you look at our reticle, when it, you zoom out, you've got this massive post that just pulls right up into the center. And you literally, you're shooting like an old German, you know, mm -hmm. number four, number one style, where you, you're just aiming to the top of the post. 
So our reticle design in this new scope we were just talking about earlier, the, the Acura RS25i, mm-hmm. this is our RH2. So this is our second generation hunting reticle. It's, this, it's the simplest reticle, but it's so perfect for first focal plane. And I haven't patented a lot of the cool stuff that we've done. And a lot, of the, a lot of it ends up everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And there's some stuff that I just kick myself. Why didn't I just, why didn't I just do that? And, but some stuff is just stupid to try to patent. This is one of them. Like a reticle, when people go do these patents, it's just so retarded. Mm-hmm. It, it stymies growth for the industry. It just, it holds everybody back. I, everybody will have to copy this reticle design. And once they understand why it's so exceptional and the customers start picking up on it, everybody will have to copy this design or this type or style or mentality ethos of creating a, a reticle. And, and once that happens, we'll see wide adoption of first focal plane. Hmm. But until, until people are able to say, I, will, I won't even use this magnification range, therefore I don't have to design the reticle to, mm-hmm. to work right. in this mm-hmm. area, then... Um, Use case scenario matters then. Yeah. Yeah. So why does why does your because your dad Brady yeah. he's he is a fanatic. Yeah, he's been a long range shooter for a long time. You know, he said custom guns built by you know Sean Carlock, Defensive Edge. Like he's had all sorts of custom guns. So if Aaron from in. Gunworks can't convince him for first focal plane, which that was like easily convincible. Yeah, for it's me. easily convincible. I think it's just a school of hard knocks in a way. Like his this well, he hard headed. Look, he hasn't looked at this reticle. Yeah, oh, true. Very yeah. good. Point. So he, so he always likes to feel that he's like the finer the crosshair, the finer I can we'll hold send, on an I'll animal. Send you, I'll power. send you the. I'll send you one to check out. Mm-hmm. We'll put it in front of him. We'll sell him. Yeah, <laughs> like he'll get there. And one, one thing I was, we were talking about reticles. What I really like too. The new one is the wind icon indicators yeah. on the side. Like you can see the glass, grass yep. going over, so you know on the right side, and you see the grass on the other side. Like even that little cool feature yep. is something that's going to be intuitive for if a lot you, of people If you to look understand. at where, like we train a lot of guys. Our Long Range University, I mean, we'll put a thousand guys through in a year. So these guys will come up and we'll teach them, like we'll make them sit through way more information than they want to learn mm-hmm. about. They just want to go shoot. But if we can give them those fundamentals, then mm-hmm. you know they're going to know how to, how yeah. to do it you know, when they're not around our guys. But when we do this, and then we get the feedback from guys that have the guns in the field, it's like, where do people fail? And I've actually been, I, I, I claim, poor boy, we don't do a lot of hunting, but I've been on a lot of hunts. <laughs> like, I've seen a lot of animals die. I've seen a lot of people shoot, like well over a thousand. I mean, well over a thousand dead animals that I've been a part of. And, you know, we do, like we're doing at the end of this uh, September, we're going to go help my buddy Cole some kudu in, in Africa. And he, he needs to take 350 animals off the place. We'll probably, I'm taking two, my two oldest boy, uh, two twin boys, we'll probably be able to do maybe 80 or 90 long range setups and kills, Wow. you know, in eight days yeah. there. So we'll get so much experience and not just the shooting, but the shoot, the spotters and Mm -hmm. like that system of communication and execution. But so, so I've got to see a lot of that type of stuff. It's not all, it's not 200 inch deer. Like I don't, that's, Mm -hmm. I don't actually do that kind of hunting. I do more of this type. Like, you know, we go do a do it yourself elk hunt. We'll draw two or three tags. Mm -hmm. Kids will fill some tags. Like we see a lot of stuff. I see where people fail. I know where I fail. Like Mm -hmm. I, I'm the typical executive that sits at a desk, gets his gun out a couple days before it's time to hunt, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> sometimes not, and then goes hunting. And I, I know where those weak points are. And, you know, one of them is holding that wind. Mm-hmm. 
Like we did the Night Force NXS as a second focal plane. And that, that was a common failure point was they would hold too much wind or not enough wind because of the magnification. Yep. Right? That's one. The second one, holding the wrong side. Yeah. Like this. What do you mean by that? So, so if you're, and it's so confusing, if you've got a, a reticle and you've got wind holds mm-hmm. to the right and to the left, and, and you've got a left to right wind, right? So left to right wind, you mm-hmm. say, I need you to hold three minutes to the left. Mm-hmm. The common mistake is they go to the center, they count left one, two, three minutes, and then shift the whole reticle over to hold it. Mm-hmm. But that's not what they should have done. Okay. Because the wind's blowing from the left to the right. If you visualize what the bullet will do, it will drift to the right. Mm-hmm. So when we say hold three minutes to the left, we mean take the center and shift it to the left mm-hmm. one, two, three minutes. Yep. So that the nomenclature and directions are just absolutely confusing. So if you're ever hunting with a newbie, like you guys are hunting with him, mm-hmm. you got to walk him through that. And yeah. you almost have to like double check which side of the reticle are you holding on, mm-hmm. et cetera. So with the wind icon, all we did was we just put this icon in here that shows the wind blowing this direction. If it's blowing this direction on this side of the reticle, hold this side of the reticle. Just and a reminder then. It, it just yeah, bakes it's a great it in. Visual. It, it mm-hmm. bakes it in. Little visual cue. Yeah. yeah and so, nice. so here's something that like I don't need to use. You probably won't need to use, but it might save your hunt. Yeah. So I love designing tools and systems that work to the lowest common denominator without making it cluttered up or, or cumbersome for a person that's maybe a little bit more experienced. So how do we make the newbie succeed mm-hmm. without you know, taking anything away from the total expert. Mm. So you what, know, BDC turret versus BDC turret plus, yeah. you know, Revic rangefinder. What are your thoughts then on holding versus dialing wind? If you're, if you're dialing wind, like think about it. So you're behind the gun and there's a 275 inch buck over there. Like, like <laughs> what, mess, what mess. can you possibly do as a shooter? Never even seen one before. If, if you are lucky to yeah. even get the freaking, tr- you know, reticle yeah. on this thing. Yep. So you grab that dial and you need to have two minutes of right wind. What are you going to do? You're going to do this? In the the moment, it is confusing sometimes for a new user, especially which way do you spin? I would have to lift my head out of the But even if it says two minutes right, is that... Does that move the reticle right? So you're actually doing left hold or is that uh, for a right wind? Mm -hmm. Do you know? I got yeah. no clue. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm thinking, thinking through in my head. I, I'm having, I have, I have to, anxiety I have just talking it every about time. it. Yeah. All I can think of is to lift my eye out of the optic, and I would look at the R and which way the arrow is going on that dial, but I would have to take my whole head out, yeah. look, yeah. think about it, dial, hopefully dial the right way, which I think I would because I'm... Well, you got a 50-50 chance, honestly. but I'll yeah. bet it's more like 75-25. You're going to screw it up. Yeah. With the, and that, I've never even seen a buck that big, so yeah, probably. I would yeah. screw it up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> If, uh, if you visualize, for me, the way I make sure that I'd hold wind the right way is... So you hold wind, you don't dial. Is, is the spotter says you got a left to right wind, or you got a left wind, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, if he says left wind, I might confirm. If it's not somebody that I've done a lot with, I might confirm. You mean left or right wind? And he yep. says yes. So it's coming from the left. So once I'm confident that I'm on board with what the wind direction is... Then I'll visualize if I shoot, the bullet's going to go this way. Yeah. So then I have to hold this way. Mm-hmm. So for me, I always do that, just that quick mental exercise. That's why I see it. But for yeah. some people, they they don't do that, right? Hmm. And so 
but it's super easy to do and it, you don't have to break the scope you don't have to get out of the gun you can literally do it in a split second mm -hmm. where if you do it on the knob and you're like is that move the point of impact right or is that move the reticle to the right you mm -hmm. know I would hold. I I do hold. I would hold that. Yeah. Uh, I don't ever like to take my eye out of the scope. Yeah, that's yeah. that was a long explanation for it. It'd be really stupid to dial wind in a hunting situation. So that's why I wanted to ask because I'm a dialer. Yeah, I was so, going to say there, Brady's a dialer. So the reason I I've always dialed is, I think it's something maybe with my mind or I'm just trying to be too perfect. Second so focal I, look at, I look at the, I look at the cro <laughs> I look at the reticle and naturally my mind wants to bring that back to the spot I want to aim. Mm -hmm. So I, might, I think I have a little slightly hard time of trusting that and looking through that in this hunting situation i'm running really fast and so i'll naturally so what happens again. if you're if you've got a uh 365 inch bull at 787 yards mm -hmm. he got a nice little window meadow he's got his couple cows he's bugling it's the stuff but it's it's the morning mm -hmm. and he's two steps away from the timber and you're mm -hmm. not going to see him again for the rest of the day and you've got a pretty good wind. It's it's later in the morning, mm -hmm. and the sun was up early, and you've got some wind moving up the canyon. So you've dialed in for a pretty good wind. Yeah. So let's say it's a let's say it's a 12 mile an hour wind, mm -hmm. crosswind. So you feel pretty comfortable with your correction. You're going to be dialed in about four minutes. Yep. Right. Wind dies. And yep, that's the he, problem. He walks over to the side of the meadow, and you're just getting ready to take that five second window. Wind dies. What do you do? Yep. Now you're going to take a shot, and you're going to miss. Because okay. you have, you have, you have if, you're hold, if you're holding, you just make that fractional adjustment. Yep. I can I can give you a hundred scenarios like that where you just dialing is. I understand the concept. Mm -hmm. If you can get a, a a reticle that allows you to use those hash marks the right yep. way, you don't get lost in the the sameness mm -hmm. of the holds. Then I think I think yep. you would find that holding yeah. will. And that's why you were explaining earlier, it makes complete sense. Yeah. And it's way bass backwards what I do compared yeah. to what should be done. And that's why I wanted to hear from you. Because yeah. like, I'm, I'm learning throughout this whole thing right now, too. It's like, that's why I love these discussions. Well, it, it, you guys have hit like three or four of these little things. There's a hundred of them. Mm -hmm. And you have ABC choices on all of those. Like, which one is potentially going to save a customer yep. mm -hmm. or me, like a situation. Mm -hmm. And so if your if your design ethos is always I choose the one that increases the chances for success. Yep. Regardless of the marketing impact, regardless of what the customer demand or requirement mm -hmm. is, because I will build stuff that I believe is going to work. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time building something just because the customer wants to buy it. Yep. Mm -hmm. That is that's not the way I run my business. Mm -hmm. You, you will, when you buy from us, you buy what I believe is going to help you be the most successful. And you are buying from me because you believe that I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so I think even like you're saying, like you're going to, where you going to Africa and you do all that stuff down there. Like that's real world experience. That's yeah. real world testing. And you can do that on a scale that a lot of people can't do because you can't do it out here, you know, in the United States and the West because like tags are limited. Yeah. Where you can go down there, get in all these different situations, figure out what works and what doesn't work for certain hunters to make them better. Simplify it. You simplify it, you, you make more If success. you raise six kids <laughs> in Wyoming <laughs> and you put in for everything, yeah. you get to see a lot of death. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you being that, a Wyoming well. resident helps too. Yeah. I want to, so I hope I can make this make sense because I'm trying to put a lot of thoughts together in my head. But like what, where I, what I see is and this is my own personal mentality too, is I am not a perfectionist. I'm a hunter. Like I now granted, do I want to make the perfect shot every single time? Do I want to shoot the tightest groups possible every single time? Of course. Right. But taking that out, 
as a hunter, all of my success has come from I am willing to forgo success for a kill shot. And you you look at perfection. You look perfection. at or yeah. sorry, I, I'm willing to forego perfection for just a, a in the vitals kill shot. And you look at the vital profiles of the of the animals, there's some leeway, right? Now you do, depending on angle of the animal and all these things, you do have smaller than what the actual vital profiles are to shoot at. But I've always, in my mind, like just foregone absolute perfection to slip an arrow in or slip a bullet in, whatever it is. And, you know, then I watch Brady shoot and he, even with archery, he is a true perfectionist. Like you are, you're a data guy. You are a true, like he wants to do it. So I understand where he's coming from too. And I understand that that would lead to success being a perfectionist, but I do it a completely different way. The hunting scenarios, I don't think perfection, perfection exists in hunting scenarios, right? Like at the ranges, I see people get perfect and do all these things. And like I'm shooting arrows right now with Omar and he's all about this perfection thing, but you start switching things up on him and he, and he's kind of like trying to figure out what to do. It's like, man, you just got to lean over and figure it out. Stress. Just find that, find that vital, just find that, that path where you know your arrow is going to fly, but you just got to sneak it in a little bit, you know? And it's like, I can see the perfection side of it, but I'm from the hunting side where it's like, you just, you got to make it work. Well, here's what, here's what we have to do as hunters. Cause I, I'm, I'm the, I got, I have both visibilities, hmm. but I'm a realist. When my guys want us to advertise a group size of our gun and guarantee it, I say, absolutely not. I think, I think that's bullshit. Hmm. Like it doesn't have to be a quarter minute gun. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and even if it is, it's like, what does that matter? Yeah. That, that matters so at hundred yards on a piece of paper. It. it doesn't matter in the field because your ability to kill and let's say perfectly kill mm-hmm. perfectly, maybe not shoot perfectly, but kill perfectly. Kill perfectly. Yeah. That's a good way to maybe, say it. Maybe to kill perfectly, you just don't need that level of system perfection or, or capability. So back it up a little bit before you take a shot ethically, what is the confidence level and capability level for you, whether it's archery or rifle, that is acceptable? Because it's not 100%, is it? Mm -hmm. So your hit probability for that one-shot kill, what's the number that you think is Mm -hmm. acceptable in that situation? And and to still be ethical, Mm -hmm. because we know it can't be 100%. Probably has to be better than 50%. You agree? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Pick, pick a sure. number between 50 and 100. What is the number that you feel is is where it's ethical to take that shot with that hit probability? 80. I was thinking it has to be close to 80 to me. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say it's 70 for me. I'm not. Hey. I mean, if somebody wants to say I'm. But you know what? You know what? I think, I think for me. the worst, worst thing that we can do as participants in this sport is to try to put your values on, on top someone, of somebody yeah. else. Yes, That's yes. what. A liberal does. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we don't do that. We're in the hunting industry. We're not that 100%, way. 100%. I agree. It's like everybody has their own. Now, what we should do is if I feel that 70 is a little low, then I should try to explain what that means. And I should try to show you the path to where you could easily make it 80%. Mm-hmm. And if I can give you the skills where you're like, you know what? My game's up and I feel like I'm not leaving anything in the field. I'm not leaving anything behind and I can make that 80%. That would be that would be a goal that I would have. Mm-hmm. I think the number is 80, 85. 
I think you strive this is, for... This is, I, this is me? I mean, personal opinion, I think you strive. You do everything within your means to know your equipment, absolutely. But he, I think maybe you're telling me what your lower threshold is, yeah, and correct. I'm saying what my goal is. Yeah. Oh, my so, goal. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah but, I am. Just to be clear, is that is my different. lowest threshold. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I'm in a hunting situation, like our New Mexico elk hunt was a perfect, a perfect example. I had some hardware malfunction. I had a knock pinch when I had the range of the bull. Then I grabbed another arrow as he was walking away. Arrow drew back. I was counting his steps through my peep. I was 70% confident that I had the right range based on the calculation yeah. of how many steps he had from my my previous range to where he was now standing. I was confident I was passing grade C level. I know his range, 48 yards, made the shot. And in that situation, I did hit him. Would that you, was my would you, lowest would threshold. You have, would you have made that same assessment if he started at 60 and moved that much? No, that would have been much lower. Right. Yeah. Much yeah. lower. Yeah, 30 or so here, 55 so here's a good, is exa- here's a good example. Yeah, experience, exactly. experience helping you yeah. make a decision on the fly. So I'm, I, I think our approach should be hit probability. Mm-hmm. So let's just arbitrarily say all of our goals should be around 80, 85%. Maybe our lower threshold's a little lower than that, but it's somewhere in that region. So the hit probability would be here's my target size, and based on me, based on my product, based on my conditions, what's the odds that that next shot is going to be on that target size so you you can really easily simulate this with nerdy engineer stuff it's called a monte carlo simulation you guys might actually use it in some of your soft some of your software guys might actually use this so it's a monte carlo simulation and essentially what you're doing is you're saying here's the range of values that could potentially exist for my wind guess for my range guess for Mm -hmm. my group size on my gun for my ability to hold steady etc etc and, and you just simulate like a hundred shots, you know, calculating mm-hmm. random extreme variables in those combinations, perturbations. And so on a, on a rifle shot, say you're shooting at say a 10, 12 inch target. That's the vital size that you pick. Animal dependent, but let's just call it a 12 inch target. And you go shoot at 800 yards and you're, you take this Monte Carlo analysis, guess what the group's gonna look like on the gun? Is it gonna, is it gonna be like your target? It's going to be long and skinny, mm-hmm. right? So usually we get our vertical under control because our rangefinders can mm-hmm. measure the distance. And if you do a good job of that, we usually we can calculate the drop pretty well. We've got co- pretty consistent bullets and velocities, and we're getting to the point where that vertical spread just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. But we're still guessing wind. Yeah. So you got this wind that comes out. So how do we buy more effectiveness? Right, like we can shoot a little faster, shoot a little higher BC bullet. You know, if we practice our shooting capability, like our groups get smaller overall. But this, this, the way that we improve our hit probability is we either improve our equipment or we improve our technique and skill. And if, if we approach our our training and our mentalities that way, right, and and actually do it from a syst- systematic, okay, I want to increase my effective range. Because now what it becomes is if 85 percent's the number, then all we're going to do is we're going to slide that target back and forth, and we're say, well, at what distance yeah. is my hit probability 80 mm-hmm. percent? And essentially, this is where we're going with our training: is is everything comes back to what's your number? Mm-hmm. Yeah, your effective range. Right. Because mm-hmm. on a rifle shot, let's say you're 500, mm-hmm. right? We can give you a piece of equipment. Yeah. And you can't. You're not very good at, at judging wind or any of that stuff. And you shoot a little bit bigger group because you're excited, mm-hmm. and you're still deadly at 500. But you are 875. Mm-hmm. 
right? Because you spend time practicing, you know your gear. I'm picking up some rifle that I haven't proven, so I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I'm 650 and just hoping that 1,000 yards out of the box thing works because I'm in a hurry, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so my distance might be a little closer. So how do, how do I get better? I'm not going to get a better gun, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to have to improve my skill. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time at the range. I'm going to get a little bit more comfortable with wind, and then all of a sudden I'm pushing 750, 775. I, I love the guys that come to our training course. They're like, man, I just, I just want to be able to shoot 500 yards. And we have this, our first bank of targets is in this 400 yard range. They shoot it once or twice. They're like, okay, let's move on. They never come back. Like they're 600, 800, 1,000 just immediately. And when they leave, I want to scare them enough that when we leave, they don't say, oh, yeah, I could shoot 1,000 or 1,200 yards. Because if, if, if that exit polling says that, we failed. Mm-hmm. What I want to hear is, you know what? If the conditions are right, I am not scared of a 750 yard shot. Mm-hmm. If the wind's a little strong, you know, it might not be quite that far. I they got a little to work to limits. do on it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you get to know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I listened to a podcast recently with uh, Levi Morgan, who you, I don't know if you know, Levi Morgan's most decorated target archer hunter. Um, recently in a, a podcast he did, he said, most people, 99% of the people, if I had two weeks with, I could sit down and run them through gear setup. I could run through form. I could run through technique with a release. That person could take a four-inch group or a five-inch group at 40 yards to potentially a two-inch. Two and, you know, with, with two weeks of just training. And it's just like that know-how, right? It's like those little details. So I was curious as to you, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about it as far as like why, you know, why people miss. You know, you've talked a little bit about the windage and, and those kinds of things. But like what, what else is there? What are those things? Like from a perspective of both the manufacturer of, you know, guns and optics, like what is, what are the details? What are the, de- the devil is in the details, but what are those details that can take somebody from, you know, the ability to, to maybe hit a target at 300 yards to 600 yards? I think the, I think the basic things that you need to do to be very, very effective, like shooting, capable of shooting at distances where a lot of people get pretty uncomfortable with the ethics of it. Yeah. Like you do not have to do very much. We did a, we did, last time you came up, we filmed the Browning, right? Mm-hmm. So we had a Browning and I can't even remember the scope. Uh, Leopold. Leopold. Leopold VX. Yeah. Something. So, so here we are, we've got a Browning and we've got a Leopold. VX5 HD. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That one. Two really, really good products. Two really, really low cost products. Like we didn't spend $10,000 to put this system together. It's mm-hmm. a, $2,000 system probably, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So if, if you take this gun, you mount this scope and you shoot it and it'll shoot a sub MOA group at hundred yards. Like everybody that's in the rifle space can probably get to that point without a lot of assistance. We had factory ammo too. I was shooting factory box ammo for yeah, it too perfect. when I was up there. So if you take this kit and then you say, well, all right, here's this sub MOA gun. What can I possibly do with this? And mm-hmm. where you know, where is the gap between that product and say like a Gunworks or, Mm -hmm. you know, a high-end custom, whatever. And it gets really, really subtle because that product, I mean, we took it to a thousand yards. We were shooting still sub MOA at a thousand. The steps that you need to do is firstly, you need to verify that the product will behave consistently. So a lot of people draw conclusions based on too few data points. Yeah. So you shoot, shoot three shots. You're like, okay, this is great. Mm-hmm. What if, what happens to the next five, right? If you shoot a box of ammo in that gun, 
does it ever have a flyer? Yeah. You ever have one that just gets away from you that's an inch and a half? More, and more than one. If you're not a confident box. shooter, <laughs> what happens is you see that thing, you're like, oh, you know what? That was probably me. That was just mm-hmm. me. Yep. It, yep. It, it's common mm-hmm. that that happens. So now all of a sudden you've got this thing that most of the time is, is this size, but then once in a while lets one go. It's that once in a while that lets one go freaks me out. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we need more data points as we're proving, okay, this is a sub-MOA gun. That means it's a sub-MOA gun all the time. I, we had a gun that didn't pass group's standard once. It was over, We our group standard is two consecutive seven-shot groups that are under three-quarter MOA. And you say three-quarter MOA, that's not very good. Two consecutive, consecutive seven-shot seven groups under three-quarter MOA. And that's not, we, we're trying to finish a massive amount of guns. I got three guys working all day long, every day, shooting guns, validating guns. Like they're not gonna sit there and wait 10 minutes between shots to let the barrels do this and make mm-hmm. sure every, drink their coffee, make sure everything's just right before they take another shot. They shoot seven shot groups and evaluate the performance. And it's shot through an Oler, which measures the, the bullet dispersion like it down to three decimal places, like they don't get a bullshit whether that works or yeah. not. Okay, so we had this gun that didn't pass. It was a seven, it was a seven RM, and we were shooting, you know, somebody else's barrel, obviously, whatever. Like we're, this was a long time ago, 10 years maybe. That gun shot under a minute of angle. Hmm. Every shot that was ever taken out of that gun shot inside of that inch circle. Like it, it cold. Hot, you know, dirty, clean, like that gun always put that bullet inside the circle. We used that gun to kill stuff for like three years. Like that thing dealt so much death, like because it was so consistent. <laughs> so I think I think getting a gun put together, the first thing is, does it, can you get something that's consistent? I don't give a crap about quarter minute or even half minute groups like sub MOA but all the time. What's mm-hmm. it do when it's hot? What's it do when it's cold? What's it do after you threw it in the scabbard on the ATV and went 20 miles back in? Did you get a point of impact shift? Yeah. Like, how does that gun behave? Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I like we'd be out hunting. I remember a Sonora hunt, we were hunting on a ranch for, uh, we did sheep and then we moved to another ranch, did uh, coos deer. And I just remember, hey, this is a small target. And we've been hunting and doing all this stuff and we've moved and like, you know, what if, like, do we have a minute just to just take a shot real quick? And I just needed to satisfy this, Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. concern, picked out a target at 1250 yards, dialed it up, smoked the rock. Okay. After all that stuff we've been doing in that condition, cold bore shot, you know, sub MOA rock Mm -hmm. at 1250. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to win on this coos deer hunt. Killed two really nice coos, right? All the all the shooting was good from the gun's perspective, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that consistency, right? That's number one. Mm-hmm. And is it really consistent? And you understand the behavior, and that's that's what we should be doing when we're shooting the guns and doing all this data. It's not just can I make their steel ring at a thousand. It's like can I prove mm-hmm. what this gun's going to do, and is it going to back me up when it's clutch time? Once you're at that point. The only other piece that we really need to do is develop what the trajectory profile looks like. And you start with what's the manufacturer's BC, what's the velocity, right? And you go from there. If you can measure the velocity, perfect, even better. And then you start 
we call it truing, but you essentially prove that trajectory. And once you feel like, okay, when I correct for 650, it hits 650. When I correct for 1200, it hits for 1200. And the old school way of doing this, where you just kind of write down how, how many clicks to drop, like everybody needs to understand that is, it is not anywhere near what we need to be doing to be hunt ready. Mm -hmm. Because that data, it's called dope, data on previous engagement, that data is only good for one set of conditions. Mm. It's only good for that instant in time where you were shooting. And what we need to do is develop the profile, the true ballistic profile, which is like all the ballistic parameters that, that allow us to predict with a calculator what's gonna happen for another set of conditions. So once we have that profile, have that other set of conditions, now it's really, really easy to apply that to either the scope or the rangefinder or however we're going to do ballistics. And there's a lot of choice there. Some people don't like ballistic turrets. You know, some people don't like MOA turrets. You know, some mm -hmm. people don't even like, you know, dialing turrets. I hope, I hope everybody can get there. But once you can apply that ballistic solution to your system, that's where everything really accelerates. That you're going to go, you're going to take this fundamental jump from like a 250, 300 yard shooter, and all of a sudden you're a half mile, mile dangerous, like just immediately, mm -hmm. before you're even like capable. Like you would be there so fast, mm -hmm. and then from there, now it's up to us to understand. Well, what are my environmental limitations? What's the wind conditions where I feel uncomfortable? And you have to shoot enough to find where that sensitivity is. And once you once you have that established, now you've kind of got your effective range. And then everything else that you do is just an effort to increase your hit mm -hmm. probability and increase your effective range. Mm -hmm. But it's simple stuff. Like our level one class that guys come do, everybody probably thinks, okay, Gunworks is just going to sell you a gun. That's not what it's about. Like our, our instructors are literally... I demand you are not salespeople. Your job is not to sell stuff. Mm -hmm. Your job is to communicate this curriculum effectively. And the curriculum that I've laid out is here's how you set up, here's how you select, validate, and set up. Like what we just went through. Gotcha. A, a rifle system. Mm -hmm. So you leave that level one class, you should be able to go pick up any gun, any scope, and squeeze maximum performance from it. That's the, that's the whole goal of that level one course is to make you capable of that system setup. Mm -hmm. Sounds you, like I need to go to a level one course. Yeah. So <laughs> under the, like, the long range university thing, you have the level one, level two and level three. Yeah. So level two, you get into some pretty advanced stuff. So that's kind of like your, well, what's spin drift? Yeah. What's aerodynamic jump? Well, how do I actually go through a more sophisticated wind analysis mm -hmm. and compensation? You know, how does terminal performance work? Yeah. We teach stuff in terminal performance about bullets that nobody does. Most classes that are out there are guys that are regurgitating something that they learned, uh, yeah. potentially in a, in a completely different environment that has nothing to do with hunting with modern equipment. So you're going to get stuff where they're going to sit there and teach you how to do your ballistics on a Kestrel. Yeah. Like that's, Indication number one, you're wasting your time. Yeah. Not that it's not good ballistics, just that it's not for hunters. Yeah, it's not real world. Yeah. It's so just... that's that's number one. The second one is you're going to get a lot of formulas and hasty solutions and math. Mm -hmm. That's the other indication that, hey, you're in the wrong spot. And if you cut out all of those guys and you look at who's left, we probably taught them how to do it. 
There's three or four schools that are out there that are essentially people that have come, that I've trained and educated in hunting long range, that have taken that and spun off and created another class, or people that have you know, taken our curriculum and tried to copy it. But you see this in product development. You guys probably see it. You see it in product development. You see it in curriculum, in education. People that copy without contributing or adding to it, because once you learn, you can't walk away from that. Mm-hmm. So if you have knowledge and you have you see some the way something was done and it's it's smart, you can't walk away from that. You have to use it, right? You, but if you can't contribute anything to it, then why are you even there? Yep. So you, you take take it in, take all the best ideas, add your knowledge and your experience and your capability, exceptionalism, and make it better. I hate I hate straight up direct copy. I hate it. Oh, we deal with it quite a bit. I hate it. Yeah. A lot. And I'm sure you deal with it even yeah. more than us. Yeah. My favorite one. Yeah. You, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. My favorite <laughs> one on my side, uh, Picatinny rail flush on the front of the stock. Mm-hmm. It is an iconic element of, of a gunworks design, like what it looks like. Like we did that almost 10 years ago. And there's other pieces of stock design that we've done that are just really cool. It would have cost me $5,000 to file a design patent, mm-hmm. instant instant design patent and protection. Like an idiot, I didn't do it mm-hmm. because I thought, okay, this is us. This is iconic. Who would who would be a big enough dickhead to, <laughs> to just straight up yeah. rip off what we do? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I underestimated because it's... <laughs> There's probably quite a few dickheads. It is, it is now, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because it is such a, it's such an easy, simple thing to do. But that that's iconic wise. That was our look. Now, if somebody took that idea and then improved it and made it better okay like i can see that's how every great idea i have it comes from somewhere right Mm -hmm. and that's not what we're getting though but same thing with your product the age old saying no one has an original idea they just have a way to make the original idea better yeah how high would you rank like a shooting school like i me and my dad took one back in the day it wasn't i'll say it wasn't a gunworks one but like i learned a lot and i feel like it was very very valuable and like I think people devalue the importance of continuing education. Did they teach you how to dial wind? Uh, (laughs) I bet they did. Yeah, if I remember correctly. Uh, That's a, in my opinion, that is a good example of go to the right source Mm -hmm. because you did you did elevate your game. Yeah, but if they're if they're not like the perfect curriculum, like they're Mm not, let's call it the Ivy League then you're getting community college stuff. Yeah. Which it's not bad, mm-hmm. but you know, your teachers aren't the same. The curriculum's not the same. The environment's not the same. Your peers aren't the same. Yep. So it's, it's, I think time is precious. Yeah. And if you look at costs, I don't think our school costs any more than anything else. I, I really don't. We've worked hard to keep the costs low on that, but time's really expensive. Mm-hmm. And if you go spend time doing this and and they're teaching you to run a Kestrel or to do math, like when the time comes to make yeah. something happen. Then you can work on it. They're not doing you any favors. That's mm-hmm. the thing I like that you're saying is that you're looking at it from a perspective of hunting. You know, that's like you, the point I was trying to make about like, perfection and hunting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the reasons that yeah, you're, we got off on a long tangent. Yeah, there. yeah no, the reasons that, that's it. Yeah, the reasons that you're giving 
for, you know, the, the decisions that you've made in your product line are based on a real life hunting situation. Yeah. And I, I like that. Like that's relatable to me. Like that speaks to me. Like, I don't really want to go to a long range school and just, I, I mean, I'm sure that it's like you're saying, I'm sure there's some value in it. Learning to, this you know, is the, press unfortunately, this is all they have press, to do. Yeah. They have to put you in front of a piece of steel at a thousand mm-hmm. and let you ring it a couple times and you are over the moon. Mm hmm. You're so excited and you go away like thinking it's the greatest thing in the world. But then when you run into a problem with your gun at home and you see something and you don't know how to address that, yeah, right? Or you run into a situation in the field and you have a condition and you don't know, you don't have the skills, mm-hmm. the tools to address that, then those guys failed you. It's like just putting a piece of steel up at a thousand yards and shooting or worse is when they get sensational and they're like 2000 yards, yeah. right? It's like, what good does that do us? All I need to know how to do is get the wind right for a 725-yard shot. Yeah. yeah, you're speaking the same language in regard to the way I set my own my archery equipment up. Like, And I, I've said this a lot on a lot of videos. I'm trying to dumb down my equipment to the point where I don't yeah. have to think a lot in a moment. Mm-hmm. But, that, but you don't do that with simple equipment. No, you, you don't. You buy the most yeah. sophisticated, mm-hmm. advanced, perfect, freaking next-level equipment yeah. where... You guys have put, you know, 10,000 hours of development time into getting this little feature or function to work, Mm -hmm. right? The most sophisticated equipment. And then that, if it's done well, that execution is so elegantly simple that anybody can do it and you can do it when it's the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that speaks to me. In the, in the same regard, because I understand. I mean, you you we're speaking the same language, just from different weapons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, you are a geek with so with that bows. it, it that's relates. Why, that's why I said it, archery guys and long range shooters yeah, or kindred spirits. It just mm-hmm. re- yeah, I totally relate to that. I mean, when you when you're talking about giving somebody either the knowledge and the equipment or both combination of the two to capitalize in the moment, to me that's what I'm looking for with my archery equipment. I really want to dumb that it's down because we both realize yeah. how easy it is to make a mistake yeah, and so to easy. fail, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And we we absolutely can't stand it. Yeah, And that's what drives us to get the best equipment mm-hmm. and to practice and develop our skill is because we don't want to fail. Yeah. 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 One, one other thing that spoke to me a lot that I wanted to get to, and I'm happy you brought up the Africa thing and you're going back. And, you know, like I said, when I was at Gunworks, it was a while ago, so I don't know if you remember this or if you still do it. I hope you still do it. But you were talking about... It wasn't just the gun itself either. It was also the bullet performance on the animal cavities themselves mm-hmm. when they hit. Yeah. And when you would go to Africa, and this is what really spoke to me back then when I'm like, holy shit, Gunworks is, they're really thinking about the things that matter, not just that perfection of, mm-hmm. you know, these tiny little bullets at 100 yards. You, you would bring, uh, you brought like a data guy or something you were saying to Africa and he would study the different bullet mm. performances. Yeah, no, this, is, a, this is another this is another person that I learned a lot from. And uh, he did a massive amount of data research and collection. And I came from, I actually was really big into handguns before I got into the long range rifles. Like the handguns were really cool. And I had a, I've got a revolver that I got hanging up in my office. I killed probably 15 animals with. Hmm. It's a little four inch barreled open sight, Smith & Wesson 44. Hmm. And I would cast the bullets and load it and shoot it and like, I shot a mule deer once, really fast shot. I walked into a clearing, dropped on my butt, threw my hands over my uh, uh, knees, and 125 yards. Like, it's an unsupported, fast, hasty shot, 
perfect, right through the shoulder. Hmm. Like, I really loved doing that. Hmm. And one of the things that was really interesting from that perspective was how do you take these hard cast lead bullets and how are they working when I would shoot these animals? And so this, all this knowledge and all this inspiration came from like old timers like Elmer Keith. And this wide flat nose bullet, what it would do, and, and this is, I kind of went off the deep end in this, is it doesn't expand. How does it kill? You go to Africa, you shoot dangerous game, they do the same thing. These wide flat nose bullets that are solids that do not expand. And they use these bullets to kill in these clutch situations. And so the old engineering, you know, quest for discovery kind of kicks in. And so I stumbled on to this research that this uh, guy did in Africa. But he basically breaks down like how wound cavities are created. And it's, it's actually really sophisticated, but it's, it's very simple. Like you, if you've got an animal of this size, He's pumping this much blood. His thoracic cavity is this deep. You poke a hole through that thoracic cavity. How big in diameter does it need to be so that he it creates enough blood loss that he dies? Right? That's it. That's that's the simple solution. So when you start looking at all these bullets with the end goal of you know how to create that that death then you're like, okay, well, I need to make some type of wound through the vitals. And if you start breaking down the bullets, what we did is we classified, you know, these really premium hunting bullets that are all designed for controlled expansion. Like we classified a lot of those there. So you got the, the bonded bullets, like the solid copper bullets, et cetera. And then we have we, this, this traditional like lead core copper jacket exposed tip bullet so that mm -hmm. encompasses most hunting bullets and most target bullets we call that like an expanding bullet and then there's this other there's this other phenomenon that exists where if you take that same bullet and take away the expanding tip so now you've got this t hollow point you know uh, jacket all the way to the tip now you have this other type of behavior and so those three classifications of bullets essentially can categorize anything that we're using in the field. And and so you, you just break those down. It's like, well, how does this one work? What happens on impact? What happens, you know, on penetration, et cetera. And you work through the whole enchilada. It's like, geez, you can kill anything with any bullet. And I, I realized that, well, what's the trade-off? Well, the, the premium expanding ones, generally the trade-off is like on a bonded bullet, doesn't shoot as good, hmm. right? On a on a uh, penetration depth, you're gonna get more penetration. On wound cavity size, it's gonna be less. Hmm. So how many uh, California animals you killed? None, none in California. None? Uh -uh. Really? I, I try to stay away from California to the best of my ability. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. I've at least been there a couple times, <laughs> but uh, so you get stuck hunting with a Barnes. Yeah. Uh, we've, done, we've done a few in Africa and a couple in Texas where I've, I've used a Barnes. And there is not a bullet that we load that would shoot better groups than a Barnes. <laughs> like the freaking bullets just shoot so good. The problem is you go solid copper, now you have less BC. Yeah. And, and you look at your effective range that that bullet can expand and penetrate and make that wound cavity mm -hmm. you're looking for, now your range is less. But we shot a, we shot a two Thule elk on a, a customer's ranch down there. And Mike shot his at like, Eight nine hundred, which is pushing the effective terminal range, shot it, put a hole right through the vitals. It was perfect. Had to shoot it again, <laughs> right? I shot one at five hundred, shot it, dropped it, shoulder shot, perfect. We hiked up there, had to shoot it again, <laughs> and 
like what we found was that we were just not quite getting enough diameter of wound cavity to get the blood loss that we need to cause death. Hmm. And so yeah, a bullet like that, it's like, it's perfect. She made a hole, made a wound cavity, awesome penetration depth, perfect, you know, precision, you know, groups were good, put the bullet right where it's supposed to go. I still felt like it, it left me wanting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in Africa and I had, um, we were testing the ELD match bullet from Hornady. So this is class number two. This is a expanding bullet, thin jacket, lead core, expanding tip. And we were shooting a lot of animals. Now I, knowing bullets, was a little hesitant to do our traditional shoulder shot. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of pulling more into the behind the shoulder, yep. going for double lung type shooting. Um, I've seen bullets expand too much and I, I'm a little nervous about that. So so I'm doing these shots and, you know, slipped a few on some shoulders and killed lots of animals and shot some stuff at 50 yards close and longer. And finally got on this hunting scenario where I've got an eland and it's it's 1300 yards. So I am at the limit of this combination, but it's a 7LRM, 180 grain ELD match running 2950. And you look at the data, I'm still delivering enough velocity that that bullet should penetrate where I want and expand and produce a good wound cavity. So I've got this bull, I've got my wind doped, and I I take this shot and I, I missed my wind by a minute and it pushed it forward onto his shoulder and it just drops him. Like if you've ever been around in Eland, they are this mm-hmm. wide. Mm-hmm. They're really as huge. wide as this table. Yeah, I've heard like, they're, they're absolutely just, massive. They're the most impressive animal. Just stones him. He's dropped. And I'm like, okay, I'm cool. That was nice. <laughs> yeah. I'll take the, I mean, I missed the wind by a minute, but I mean, we're shooting a, a window that's this big for vitals. So, all right. So we get up, we pack our stuff up and we're hiking in and all of a sudden he stands up hmm. and now we're 1200 yards. He's pointing the other direction. I'm like, okay, hurry up. Let's get another shot. And we don't want to have one of these deals because like an Eland, like you think a elk, elk can move in some mountains, like an Eland will cover some ground mm-hmm. and you, you might be days into getting that. I've heard how big they are. How big are they actually? They're much bigger than bull elk, right? Oh, like, Four times. They look so muscular. That much bigger? I Four th- times they are They are Yukon moose <laughs> oh, man. type. Like cross Holy between shit, a Yukon moose and a Brahma bull. I've man. heard wow. people talk about it, but I've never like never really asked. Sheesh. So he's pointing this other way. And I'm like, okay, well, I screwed the wind up last time. So I'm just going to cheat a little bit more. Well, the wind was more like my first read. So now I put it on the opposite shoulder. <laughs> stoned him, just drops him right there. And what you're doing is you're basically getting into this meat high and your your their spine dips right there so you're getting some shock into that um, nervous system mm-hmm. and that'll sometimes just like freak them out and drop you them. know yeah paralyze them for a minute okay so then we hike all the way up to him he's still not dead right and and, and had to put one more like right there mm-hmm. lungs you know got it those bullets were getting into the meat right and then they're expanding mm-hmm. too quickly Mm. And then they're shedding all this mass and they're shedding energy and there's just not enough to get through both lungs. Big animals like that, you got to have that wound cavity through both lungs because, you know, one small wound cavity through one side or the back end of some lungs and they'll, they'll seal up and they'll keep breathing and they'll keep going. <laughs> so that, that was, that's, there's a great example of, okay, well, here's a limit, right? Yeah. Here's a bullet that... You know, an 890-yard shot at an elk, you know, through the lungs, it's perfect. But if you did hit it in the shoulder, it's not. It could it could potentially fail. And so then we go to the, like, my favorite of all time was this VLD-style bullet, mm-hmm. where you got this hard tip, 
And you, you go to the forums. You you got to be careful learning from forums. You go to the forums, and guys are talking about drilling the oh, drilling yeah. the holes out and doing all this stuff to try to get the bullet to expand because they think that the bullet's just going to point in and then just peel back and make this shape. But it doesn't work that way on these bullets. What happens is it behaves just like a full metal jacket. So when the bullet's flying through the air, it's stabilized with spin. Right, mm -hmm. you're spinning at 250 to 300,000 RPMs, and it's just like a top. It makes this rigid spin axis, and as it flies through the air, that rigid nature of that spin axis keeps pointing downrange. Even though that center of pressure might be trying to turn it over and make it tumble, that it holds its its nose forward attitude. All right, so you get into the target, and uh, it's not spinning fast enough to continue in that stability because we're talking 96% water versus, you know, the, the much, much less dense air. Mm -hmm. So the bullet goes unstable. Spin stabilization doesn't work anymore. So you need two things to happen. Like if the bullet expands and gives you a shoulder, it transitions from spin stabilization to shoulder stabilization. And that's why those wide flat nose bullets will penetrate straight through is the pressure on the nose. If it tries to turn hmm. the pressure on the leading edge will straighten it back out. Hmm. So you get a shoulder stabilization with a little tail, um, like, like an arrow stabilizes yeah. a little tail stabilization with a, with one of these hollow point VLDs, when it starts penetrating, like there's no shoulder, it's pointy, yeah. right? So what it does is it goes unstable, which means it will overturn. It's called a J-hook in a full metal jacket bullet. You, when you shoot something, it's non, a non-expanding bullet. It will flip around. Now the base of the bullet is enough to impart stability. So if it flips all the way around, it'll usually just penetrate out butt first. But that diameter of that is not quite enough to, re, to make enough damage to make the wound cavity mm -hmm. what you want. If it's a little bigger diameter, the the displaced tissue can sometimes make a bigger diameter. Huh. So that bullet goes out butt first, it's like, it probably <laughs> isn't sufficient to kill. And so maybe you have to shoot again. Hmm. So you always saw us with those bullets, we were shooting shoulder. Mm -hmm. So you smash some bone, that bullet starts coming apart. You smash bone and you've anchored that animal. And maybe the wound cavity of the bullet wasn't like massively huge inside, but he's incapacitated and you, you've anchored him and he will bleed out um, pretty quickly. A lot of the times with those bullets is when they start to turn, structurally they don't have enough uh, strength to, to go sideways through that tissue and so the nose will break off. Yeah. Hmm. And so, so most of the time, the way those bullets are expanding is they'll go in, they'll go unstable, breaks, shears the nose off, and then they expand and make a mess out of what's left. So I would say 65, 70% of the performance I'm expecting from the 600 to 900 yard ranges with an elk with a 168 to 180 grain burger in a seven millimeter is non-expansion on the offside. Mm-hmm. And obviously we quarter a lot of elk and you don't get into the inside of them much. But most of the time when I've done that, it's like you got bullet fragments that have bruised that opposite rib cage. And you've just absolutely destroyed the, the lungs or heart of, of, in that area. Mm -hmm. um, I did a test once, half inch, uh, half inch steel plate, 350 yards. This is 15, 18 years ago, trying to understand some bullet stuff. We were doing expansion tests and everything. And I shot... Uh, Acubons and Barnes and like all these super duper bullets and this and this VLD bullet, 
And literally all those bullets would smudge the steel. That was it. And the VLD bullet would knock a hole straight through it. Hmm. And and what we did when we did some expansion testing is what we saw was that shape because because it doesn't have that soft tip that essentially disintegrates on impact right. and creates this bigger area to do work with because you have this really small tip you get a really high dynamic pressure and you get a, a if you break down a wound cavity you have your upset distance which is the penetration that you get before the bullet does something different mm-hmm. turns over expands whatever and then you have this huge wound cavity and then you have kind of the final penetration after it's kind of had this huge massive energy dump come apart what's left and how much energy it has kind of dictates that so this vld shape you get this massive you know three inch plus upset distance so you think about smashing an elk right on the top of the shoulder you know not down at the knuckle but up high you don't have that much meat to get through smash that shoulder then you don't have a you got some ribs and stuff and then you've got that spine and you've got all the lung stuff that's there like it's the most perfect awesome shot because it anchors them so you're not tracking them mm-hmm. and then it does enough damage in the lungs that they bleed out and die as quickly as possible which is always our goal mm-hmm. so you take that that vld bullet it gets in there every time and everybody's like oh what are you doing shooting a target bullet it's just going to blow up and you hit it's like no 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 yeah. the failure is it flips around j hooks and pokes out the other side the failure isn't that it blows up term hmm. terminal i love Man. that stuff yeah. but that that that's, was that's the, the good that's nugget. the kind of shit that I love because that's like <laughs> as a hunter that's that's the real knowledge dump of yeah. okay what you know what am I shooting what's my purpose for it what kind of animal all this what, stuff. how is it going to behave so I can behave accordingly exactly mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. I mean that bullet that doesn't expand like the the burger pokes a hole in does this huge energy dump and maybe doesn't expand the other side and you're in Texas. And you get a shot at 195 inch whitetail on a Sendero at 575 yards, and it is thick. Mm-hmm. And you shoot that thing with the burger, and he's dead, but he doesn't know it. He runs 150 yards somewhere, yeah. and you go try to find him, and you can't find him because he piled up like in a different spot than you're looking, and the coyotes get him. Yeah. Or you shoot him with a Barnes that absolutely just blows a hole straight through him, and he's just pumping blood out the other side, and you trail him right in there, and there he is. Yeah. It's like so. There's two scenarios. Do the same thing on a mountain goat. You're you got a mountain goat, and he's a big one. He's a book goat. He's on the cliff face. Which bullet do we want? The yeah, barns. The one probably that, not. The one that anchors. The him. one that anchors him. Right yeah, where probably he's not the VLD right there because mm-hmm. you're gonna you potentially that upset distance gets it through the animal. I've seen that on antelope mm-hmm. before. We want that one that just expands, mm-hmm. and we want to just smash him and just absolutely annihilate him and anchor him right there. And we want to shift our aim point forward into that high shoulder, so we are breaking up some spine. Mm-hmm. So every bullet has its limitations depending on the conditions. Every scenario probably dictates yeah. the perfect bullet, and it's probably not the one that you've got loaded and ready for. Yeah. So just understanding how the bullet that you have behaves will drive, well, how far am I going to shoot? You know, what type of shot am I willing to take? Am I willing to take this really extreme quartering shot? You know, am I willing to take this shot on the shoulder or aim for the heart? It's like you, if you know how your bullet behaves, then you can maybe adjust just a little bit. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's one of those sections I'm going to have to go back and listen to probably three or four times. Do you believe in a, in a one cure? It's a lot of hunters. You can't, right. It gets so expensive and it gets so time consuming and all this stuff. But is there a gun where somebody could shoot an antelope to a whitetail in Texas to an elk top of a mountain? I don't change my bullets. 
Did I don't you, change my bullets. You just I change just, the distance? I, just cha- I change my behavior yeah. and, and the shots that I take. Because and, you understand. And, and I accept you know, the, the, the limitation <laughs> and deal with it. And antelope, okay, so maybe you don't get the perfect wound cavity, right? Maybe it zips through him, and it doesn't just anchor him right on the spot. I do not shoot shoulders on antelope. Mm-hmm. Even though I don't shoot 85-inch antelope, I have a hard time blowing a hole out the other side and mm-hmm. ruining the cape. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I love antelope too much for that. So I'm usually shooting double lungs. If I'm shooting a VLD bullet, it's not going to expand enough. But is he going to go... 15 miles in the mountains and pile up in a crevice no. that you're just no, you're gonna it's going to kill him. you to find him no he's going to run you know a mile over here and you're going to take this two track over and you're going to get out and you're mm-hmm. going to go get him yeah so it's like conditions dictate that acceptance whereas that bullet in my opinion is the perfect bullet on an elk you know mm-hmm. i'll take the performance on a mule deer mm-hmm. i shot my brown bear at 50 feet with that bullet <laughs> and smoked him like it like there's a lot of good that comes from that so when people ask all the time because we get asked quite a bit like what if i'm if i want a gun from antelope to elk and all this stuff what should i get and we get asked that question a lot that the answer more so is just understand what you have and the capability for i think the, so for the purpose well, you know what we love getting gear we really do new gear is awesome <laughs> oh yeah trail will test we that. Love it, right? trail it's yeah. the best i think like if you were going to go buy a gun right now i would go find a seven prc mm-hmm and like we invented the 7LRM in 2011, it's pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've shot so much with that or with 7 REM mag, 7 PRC is kind of the same thing. Why go buy a 7 PRC? Yeah, it's a new kid on the block. I mean, it's pretty, pretty sexy. There's one reason. You can buy really, really good Hornady ammo mm-hmm. shooting ELDX bullets or the CX bullet or the match bullet. You pick your poison. All three categories, pretty much. You can go buy that ammo for sub $40 a box, and it's freaking good. And if you just learn how to deal with the velocity changes over lots mm-hmm. and just put a system in place to deal with that, you have you, you can get a $1,000 gun to punch way above the spend, <laughs> way above the spend. And I think that bullet is absolutely sufficient to do your North America stuff. That's cartridge size, bullet weight, impact velocities in our hunting distances. Yeah, I would, I would do everything with it. It's a great takeaway. That's an awesome takeaway. Yeah, you're, that was awesome. Have you ever looked at getting a 7 PRC? I have one. Oh, you do? From Gunworks. <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have one. Oh, I need to play with that. Yeah. <laughs> or do I? Actually, I might not. I, I might think you've got 7LRM. I have 7LRM and a 6.5 PRC yeah. from you guys. Yeah. It looks like we need a seven PRC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like buying new shit. Let's buy something right now. Where, where do you think uh, like technology and all this is going? Like, where, where is there room to expand in optics, rifle systems, ammo components, you construction? Know, it's, or it's are so we like getting tapped I, out? I, I'm, I'm pretty sad about technology in our space because yeah. the knee jerk reaction of a lot of the game agencies or the legislation makers are this is cheating. Yeah. So we need to ban it. And I, I really, really have a problem with this because the, 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 where this is going, like you, so you take, you take a turret on a scope, right? They can't outlaw that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not going to outlaw an exposed turret. Like they can't. You take a rangefinder with ballistics. I think they would like to outlaw some of that, but I don't think that they could do it. 
So you take a rangefinder with ballistics and a turret on a scope. That combination is as sophisticated as you need to shoot as far as you want. Yeah. So you go look at our smart scope where we put this micro display in it and it's measuring pressure and temperature and incline and compass and all that stuff. And when you turn the dial, it tells you the range you've corrected for. So you range the target, dial to the range, it's perfect ballistics and you shoot. That is not any more advantage than having a rangefinder with ballistics and a turret on a scope. And just make it all in one. Yeah. And maybe there's a small amount of time factor. A lot of it's just like convenience. And some of it's like, we just like doing new gadgets and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe that it makes you any more deadly or encourages you to take shots that are any farther. But that scope has a few states where it's not legal to hunt with. Mm -hmm. And it's completely arbitrary. And this is why I have a problem with it is... We take that scope, like, so you, so you get into the gunworks system and you start learning about what your effective range is, right? You're real smart about terminal performance of your cartridge. So say you've got your max effective system range, which is probably well over a thousand, right? And then you have your max effective range based on conditions. What Your no wind max effective range might be eight, 900 yards. Yeah. Wind is everything. Right? Like if you've got your elevation died, you could be almost a thousand yards, max effective range, no wind, as a fairly intermediate to novice shooter. You put wind on there and it's going to get shorter fast. Let's say you get into the 10 mile an hour wind range, that max effective range is say 600 yards. Mm -hmm. And and this a lot of this is what you set up personally as your minimums. So flying, like flying, uh, mistakes and flying equal death rather than wounded animal. But still, it's it's a thing of, of gravity that it, you don't want to do either one. You don't want to die. Mm -hmm. You don't want to make a bad shot. In flying, the, the uh, performance limitations of the aircraft are a thing. Uh, I've been training on a Cessna 172. That's a high-wing aircraft. And its max demonstrated crosswind landing is 15 knots. That doesn't mean it can't land at a higher crosswind, but what the, the way that all these ratings goes is if you land at a higher crosswind, you are now a test pilot, right? <laughs> you're, you're a little off the chart, right? <laughs> but my personal rating is nowhere near 15 knots. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a night flight, uh, dual instructed, so CFI, we flew up to Billings and back, and I had to do some landings at night at a tower control airport, and then we came back. So we're in the air two, two and a half hours. We get back to Cody, the freaking wind's big. And Cody's just got, oh, it's, wind sucks. It really does. And we had, we had a crosswind that was 19 knots. And we have to get on the ground. We, I didn't do it. I said, I nominate you to make this landing. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and uh, my CFI is a cute little 24-year-old uh, blonde that just freaking flies like gangbusters. She's awesome. And she just put us down. But I could tell, like, you can sense... The pressure you can sense the concern she was hmm. she was at max like max focus max intensity max stress level like we were we were pushing it and night landing and all that stuff my crosswind limit's probably about six knots hmm. like I, I if i'm by myself it's six knots okay i'm probably not going to flip the plane over <laughs> pretty sure i'm not gonna <laughs> but it's the same thing with this these distances right you're gonna you're gonna be able to set Especially if you put the time in and shoot, you're going to say, okay, I'm comfortable here. I can do this, right? If you take this technology product, this scope, right? And we're, we're really, we're doing the app stuff, 
right? So we've got this app, you program your ballistics, it integrates with all the ecosystem of products. Why can't the scope be like, hey, buddy, like you set this up, you say, I'm not going to shoot at an animal beyond this distance. And you basically say, like, this is the keys, right? And you tell the scope, do not work back this past this difference like taking technology away from us essentially I, I i think limits our future ability to help us make better decisions hmm. when the heat's on like yeah. when that big animal's in front of us because that's where that's where we might need just a nudge like we might need our hunting partner to step stay stick up and say hey why don't we try to get a little closer why don't we come back tomorrow and try this again right or maybe your technology is prompting you hey look you've already said you're not going to do this shot so blink 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 yeah don't do it interesting perspective that i hadn't really thought about in in regards to to those types of tools and scopes and they can't they they can't you can't legislate away the ability to take these long shots Mm-hmm. And when they take away these these tools, these products, what they don't understand is if this is like the fingerprints on the gun. Eventually, what this technology does is it helps us be better. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I want to talk about Go Hunt software, guys. I I have to admit that I haven't been using your stuff, not for three years. And I saw this new feature you guys just released, and I'm I'm getting pretty excited about it. Like we've been doing so much app development. To me. I'm starting to see how, like how apps and and services can like change like outcomes, and and frankly, I'm hitting you up right now. Our rangefinders need to talk to your app. Mm-hmm. Totally, and they agree. need to drop a pin. Completely, this agree. needs to happen. All right, I, I'm. We are fully on board for okay. that. We would love to do that. We control our software. We write our stuff. We don't outsource it. Same with us. You, same here. Mm-hmm. It's like we can make this happen. Absolutely. I, 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 we have a new little Android, Android platform with some GPS. It's like I need to figure out how we can get access to your software on that. That might be like an end of the year product. It's mm-hmm. like I want that. Yeah. But t- tell me what has has changed in the last two years since I haven't yeah. been deep into so this. So what's changed in the last two years? We've just we we have now accomplished the full circle of product suite that we've been wanting to accomplish. Cool. Which I'm sh- I'm that sure you cool can. Place. You've you've been there, right? You beat us to that to that spot with your products. Um, but we knew we were always going to be, or always wanted to be, you know, if we could make the right products and, and have enough people that wanted them like we do. We knew we were going to be the start, the middle, and the finish of a hunter's annual cycle, right? Finding tags, do the research, find the tags that you want, the experiences you want, um, hunt with people, party hunts, whatever it is, hunt on your on your own for big stuff, little stuff, whatever it is. We knew we were going to be there, and we knew we were going to be through. If you didn't draw a tag, here's your other opportunities. Here's all the over-the-counters. Here, you need to pick up a bow. You need to do this. Here's all the content. Here's everything you can learn. Everything you need to be a, you know, over-the-counter or second, uh, um, um, second draw type of hunter in some of these states. Then into the e-commerce part, because honestly, the e-commerce was an interesting one. We never really had, like, truly planned on that in our. If you look back at the business model in 2010, when we, you know, wanted what we wanted to fund as far as a business was, e-commerce had nothing to do with it. But what we found was we were getting so many questions for guys like Brady and Trail and and Brandon and some of these guys who are just so diehard hunters. Why do you have those boots? Why do you use that backpack, that tent, all this stuff? 
like, man, we, we really have a voice here that we can help people. Like how much money have we wasted on <laughs> gear so many dollars that had flashy marketing and we thought was cool. Cause we're gear junkies, right? Yeah. Trail. And how much money have we wasted? You know a what lot. I mean? And that's where we came from with the e-com stores. Like, man, we can save people. I don't know so if it's much. wasted, but I burned a lot. No, I mean, you got to well, look you, at it as I, education. Yeah, it's wasted because edu- you learned. But education. now what can we do? Sure. Yeah. We can educate on time and, and less spend of money on gear that we uh, is tried and true. We only carry and use stuff that is tried and true that we've used, we believe in, all that stuff. The part we were always missing, though, was in the field, right? Like, we, we did all this work in... in Look, uh, maybe we're not as very smart, but this offline app stuff is not easy. And it's, it's, no, it's no. really... I know exactly what you're doing, it's and really I agree hard 100%. Work. It's really hard work. And, you know, did we underestimate how hard it was going to be? Yes, we thought we'd be here sooner, whatever. We're there now, which is the good news. And so now we have this in-the-field part that is connected to the rest of the ecosystem. So all this, like, all this information in knowledge dump that you're gathering through this process of going hunting into the field. Now, when you're in the field, all of this is being captured and now plugged back into your ecosystem when you come back Mm -hmm. in the next year for research and all this stuff. Well, the app itself right now, obviously the purpose for an app on your phone is, is offline navigation in the field hunting. We believe it goes a lot further than that. We believe the need for an app goes a lot further than that. And that's what we're continuing to build off of is, an app, a, a navigational phone app, is a navigational phone app. That's it's a map, right? I've never used a map without having a purpose for the map first. I always go to a map with a purpose. My yeah. purpose is hunting, and there's good products out there for a purpose-built map in the hunting space. But you know, in our version of hunting, everything, everything of importance comes before the map, and the map is just kind of that last piece, right? And the the more power we can put and do an app over and above mapping is is what's going to be is what's going to lead to more success for a hunter right mm-hmm. so we have the map now um and we have some very specific things in it like we just launched topo mm-hmm. it's a very hunting centric topo right we were very focused yeah, on I saw that. contour intervals yep. um uh, um elevation band lines like tighter things so you can really find pinnacle points and choke points and all these things that a hunter is really focused on not necessarily looking at something am i going to get clipped out right that's a little easier but when you focus on shading contour intervals all these things you can start to find these fine-tuned little animal animal behavior type mapping features right um so we're 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 still carrying out some of these like features in the map itself but it is not that's that's just the beginning. That's like scratching the surface for us. It's so it's so much money. Oh god. <laughs> it's so much money. Oh. Like we're 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 very small. Like our our app most of our difficulty comes from bluetooth communications yeah. and like how devices talk. You know, the ballistic side, it's actually really easy to do a ballistic app. Like you got just algorithms, you got inputs, yeah. outputs done. It's like it's the, the communication is the the hard part for us, <laughs> and that's that's ab- that absolutely there. But I've had, I probably have six hundred and fifty thousand dollars of wages that I've paid in developing our app to our point. Yeah, I don't want to say you, the you have to be a factor of ten. It's <laughs> a good guess. <laughs> that's probably, a really good I yeah. would guess. No, that's a, honestly. You know, this is a, that was a very good guess. Yeah. Honestly, I'm just being straight up with you. That was yeah, a very just looking guess. at complexity. I mean, yeah. I know what it takes. Like we're trying to do like a simple um, 
you know, mapping vectoring solution for this one device mm -hmm. just to drop, just to pin drops, right? Yeah. And just getting offline access to data. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I feel, I just have a little glimpse of what your pain is. Yeah. Like and it's then, significant. and then the, we, like I said, we wanted to talk to the rest of the ecosystem when you're done too. So yeah. then now you have these access points and keys where you're bouncing in and out of service. Now, mm -hmm. what are the, what are the communication tokens going back and forth of you have service, but it's only for a minute. So, and it only What's downloaded 20%. Thing? So does it drop completely or do you just pause it and wait for the next? But what if that happens a hundred times on a hunt? Now you have all these half baked. I don't think, I don't think most people downloads. realize like, all the small decisions oh, that have to be made to try to yield a, a product that, that has an outcome that is like user friendly. Yeah. yeah. Like my, my goal is if I make a really, really sophisticated technical product and I give it to a customer, if I have to give him instructions, I failed. Yeah. It's not good enough. Yep. I failed. Entirely if if you have to have an owner's manual, it's a fail. Entirely mm -hmm. agree. But yeah. And that's where we're I focused. I fail a lot. <laughs> we all do. But then you get user feedback. Yeah. And then you listen to your users. Like we, you, you said, you know, you, you make, you make, you try to anticipate what somebody needs. And then you get the user feedback if that was true or not earlier in the podcast. Yeah, so that's you, exactly you, what we You do. have to take the user feedback and you have to run it through a filter. Yes. And understand the root cause. And project the yep. need for yep. that root cause. And that's yep. exactly what we do. Um, but yeah, man, it's, it has been a slog of a fight to get to this point, but fuck it, we're here. <laughs> yeah, I've been watching some of the stuff that's come across over the last couple of years and it's pretty cool. I need to get, yeah. truth is, I just haven't been hunting. Yeah. I just have not been doing enough field work. I am just, honestly, I'm getting pretty lame. Time to get out. Yeah. I honestly haven't either, to be to be completely truthful. I had my son four years ago. I haven't backcountry hunted since. Now yeah. this year, he's four and a half, we're good. We've got two in a row. But yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. And we've been so focused on yeah. this, right? Because the the rest of our business hangs in the performance of this because this is that final it, piece. You, you're going through the same cycle I did. I mean, I love outdoors and I love hunting. I love the social piece of it. Like yeah. I love the, the proof piece of it, like all the preparation mm -hmm. and just proving what, you know, what you've achieved and what you've created and what you've developed. But I've noticed as I, I'm going to say mature rather than get older, <laughs> but as, I, as I've matured and as the business has become like more and more significant, like, like there's 85 people that, that are together building these products at Gunworks. Mm -hmm. Like there's 85 families that are getting supported by what we do. And all of a sudden, like, there's a little more pressure on me to yeah. not screw up. A I've made some more. huge mistakes. It's like, they cost so much. Yep. And, uh, and, and to me, like, creating a product that somebody goes and has success with, to me, gives me more fulfillment than going and having success. Like, my success is their success. Completely I, agree with that. My most, my most favorite thing in the world, a customer sends a picture of a of a uh, a sheep that he killed he came out for a level three course he's a east coast you know uh money manager guy like like not from our world and he comes out to he goes through the systems guns comes out does this level three course and has a sheep hunt and he goes and kills a sheep and he kills a freaking 42 inch twister hmm. big based absolutely dark stone like i am just wet 
looking at this sheep. <laughs> like I, I want, like yeah. I want to go do that. And he talks about this steep shot and is straight out of level three and this and that. And I look at his face and like he lost some weight to do this hunt. And I look at his face, I'll bet he lost 20 pounds on this hunt. And I, you can just read the entire story mm-hmm. of what that was to him. Not just this, the, not just the shot and the success, but the whole preparation and the journey and that experience. And it's just writ large on his face. Yep. And he sends me this and he's just like, we, we were probably one of his first emails is communicating to us how he was successful, you know, at the end of this journey that we were a part of. Yeah. And, you know, sends a, a picture with, you know, the ram and the gun and the scope coat and just God, proud. Like, I love it. Yeah. Like and that, that does that does more for me than me yeah. putting that animal on the wall. And I, our, our version of that exact story, I can tell you the most validation and the most happiness I get. There's this there's this undercurrent and, and theme going on in hunting that hunting's getting harder. It's harder to get tags. It's harder to do all this stuff. Our whole thing is there is plenty of opportunity. It is just different than it used to be. And we help you. It's that yeah. it's that shift of how it works now. There's yeah. it's there's just a shift of hunting that's happened in the last, you know, what do you what do you guys think? 10, 15 years yeah. that is just this massive shift of opportunity and what's available and how do I go hunting with my dad and my brother, these family hunts, hunting camps, all this stuff. And we when somebody sees our product and understands our product and the value of what it supports. And then they in turn turn around and say, I can't thank you enough. This is what I used to do. Yeah. And now I just figured out a way to do it again in this, in, in how hunting works now. Like that is our validation story. Yeah. You know, I yeah, love those it. Those are great. I love those. Never I gets liked, old. I liked what you said. And the, the fact that you're not necessarily just looking at the animal, the weapon, but I mean, you're seeing that entire experience in that guy's face. Yeah. You know, and in the background, I mean, that's to me, that's like the magic is just that entire experience that you can, you know, pick apart because you knew what it took. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there is like a, a sense of satisfaction and just you can't. It's, it's always it, nice to be validated. Right. Well, Everybody that, wants to. Yeah. That and it's just, say it's, they don't care. And yeah. this and that. But Unless when you get validated. There. That's a well, fucking good what, feeling. What that yeah. image means to me, like if you get to the root cause, that image means I'm going to be able to make payroll for those 85 people, mm-hmm. right? If our customers are having that success, then that means I can be successful and I can share that with mm-hmm. our Gunworks family. Yeah. Like that's what that means to me. Absolutely. Yeah, and we've, we've talked about it a lot, but I mean, just for the same reasons, like I, I love when I get one of those because I know, and I say this, I'm a broken record, but and you know, you know what hunting and like outdoors and that experience has meant to you in your life and the direction of your life. And I think we could probably all go around the table and like pull out individual experiences in the woods that we've had that have like tremendously (laughs) impacted our life to the point where it probably changed our life, right? In the direction of our life. And like the ability for somebody else to have had an experience like that, partly in, in, because of what you produce. To share in it. Yeah, to share in that. It's a pretty incredible feeling because you know what it's meant to you and then to have a small part in having them experience that same thing, that same life-changing thing is pretty freaking great. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Makes the slog worth it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) Did you guys have any more questions? We've been, we were what, two and a half hours? 2.15? I'm going to keep you all morning. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I like Dr. Dio. Yeah, I could keep uh, going. I have a lot of just random thoughts, but hit him. 
I got one, maybe one more. Yeah, do it. All right. Since I got you here, I want to hear your thoughts on suppressors for long. Oh range yeah, I was gonna ask that one too. That's a good directional one. muzzle brakes. Pros, pros and cons, and yeah. I'll, I'll preface it maybe to begin <laughs> Absolutely. with with my story a little bit. And I know Cody's really excited. I'm about to talk about this because he gives oh. me a hard time a lot. So I don't use a suppressor for hunting, and I'm a long range shooter as well. My reasoning is I like a directional break. I like to be able to tame the recoil back. So if I'm hunting solo by myself, I can watch that impact perfectly every single time. And I can handle, and I shoot 30 cals, I can handle recoil, handle everything. So to me, yes, a suppressor is going to reduce noise, and that's the big benefit. Um, but for me, a directional break gives me more of what I need for a long-range shooter, yeah. long-range hunter. Break, what break are you running? I have a Snowy Mountain Rifles Titanium Snowflake Break Report, and I've used the Area 419. Oh, yeah. And it's a little angle back? Yep, angle back. Okay. Yep, and I've used Area 419. They're uh, Hellfire Breaks. Yeah. Um, we can pick we can pick any piece of a system and I'll, I can give you a, a nice one hour sermon on mm -hmm. on it so I'll try to keep this one shorter I have a lot of passion for this though because a, a muzzle brake is actually a really really cool tool mm -hmm. when it comes to shooting and mostly because of the things that you just uh, outlined, which was your ability to see your impacts. Yeah, I like to be able to track it when I'm solo. Like yeah, if I have for, someone for friend sure. with, with my like there, there's easier. a piece of muzzle brake which is to you know give you access to bigger recoil without a lot of the negative trade offs that come with it. Mm -hmm. And you're shooting a 30 caliber. Yep. If you didn't have a brake, I don't think you would shoot a 30 caliber. No, it, it hurts. I'd what like is your gun weight? Uh, 14 and 42 pounds. pounds. <laughs> that's my backpack. That's my backpack. Gun. Dude, you, you, I play in a, I play in a world that's completely different than yours. Yeah. Like a 14 and a half pound gun. We can't even make one that heavy. Yeah. Like customers don't want it. Yeah. The ideal, uh, hunting gun weight for, I, I think a lot of the Western mountain type hunters is probably in that eight and a half to nine mm -hmm. pounds. This is when I say ideal, this is the customer's ideal. Yep. Like I, I actually am a customer as well. I like something that's in that weight range. Mm -hmm. I think a 10 to 11 pound gun, the difference between that, you know, eight to nine and 10 to 11 is very significant in the user's ability. You know, the user's experience. Our original LR1000s were 10 to 11 pound guns. Yep. And because we were so new and because we were doing something that was so, like, exceptional, like, so different um, than what most people were used to seeing and, and able to buy, we were able to force feed them, you know, seven rem mags in 10, 11-pound guns mm -hmm. because what they wanted was four-and-a-half-pound 300 rums. Like, that's what they wanted. Mm -hmm. But because we had this little hook of being able to drop stuff at a half mile, they're like, fine. I'll take it, yeah. right? And those guys that got those guns, like they don't turn loose of them. Like those guns do not show up used very often, like not very often at all. And we have a list that's a hundred deep of if one comes available, please call me because I want one. Mm -hmm. So a big part of that's weight. Yeah. Now, we, when we started, I was anti-muzzle brake guy. Like we, do, we did a lot of shooting schools. We were running seven mags in those 10 pound guns without muzzle brakes Oof. at shooting school, our ammo consumption was very low. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hard to shoot. People and, were done. And, Hurts and every time. as we matured, like, and I and I finally got over a little bit of a prejudice. I'm like, wait a minute. Why don't we instead of just having this muzzle break? Yeah. Why don't we say, what can I do with it? And you back up and define the problem. A lot of people in our space, they just copy what's out there. Like both of those muzzle breaks, those are just copies mm-hmm. of a muzzle break. Oh, yeah. Copies of a, a muzzle break, copies of a muzzle break. And all they're saying is like, if you know, this is sexy. People get excited about this feature. So let's build this feature and let's make our own. And it only costs 25 or $30 to make it. So why do I want to spend 180 buying somebody else's break to put on my gun? So let's mm-hmm. just make our own. So where they all came from. You look at a muzzle brake, and it's it's. We've talked about bullshit signals. Like here's a bullshit signal. If they have four ports, it's bullshit. Yeah, there's like a trend even more now. I've seen some five ports out there. I know. And if you go you go look at a study, like in and do the numbers, eighty percent or something like this, sixty eighty percent is one port, yeah, one baffle. Way, yeah. You get another 10, 12% in the next one. And then by the time you get to the third one, you're only contributing about 6% more recoil reduction. You get to the fourth one, guess what? It's virtually zero. Fifth, mm-hmm. retarded. Yeah. So like that, the, the muzzle brakes are one of these sensational areas where these people just, they just, they follow the, the customer and marketing hype and they, and they feed to it mm-hmm. or they copy without understanding why. So if you go to the break and you say, well, wait a minute, here's the problem is I want to have a hunting weight gun in a hunting sized cartridge Mm -hmm. that can kill at long range. And to do that, I need to be able to see where my bullet hits because I'm not sure if I'm going to trust my guide that's with me to make the right call. Because I've seen him make the exact wrong call a million times. I don't trust him. I need to see it. Even my super spotter buddies that hunt all the time, it's like having one more set of eyes is always handy. Mm -hmm. Plus, if you see it happen, you can can be in motion and affecting your adjustments Mm -hmm. before the communication can even happen. So absolutely, you need to have it. There's two reactions that a gun makes that three, there's three reactions a gun makes that we can affect that can help us to see that impact. First one is the easy one, which is the impact backwards because that movement has an effect. The second one is when you spin that bullet up 300,000 RPMs, the gun reacts in the exact opposite, right? So the bullet goes this way, guns going this way. So the gun's twisting and then the third one is you have an offset moment. You have line of action down your barrel, a line of reaction through the stock. That gives you a moment arm, and that causes muzzle rise. So, and we can go down a whole rabbit hole with stock design that yeah. can also uh, shed some light on some of that. But let's focus strictly on the muzzle brake. So to, to stop the recoil, I need two ports. Like, I don't need three ports. Need them, yeah. It's not worth it. It's like, we're going to add another half an inch for a few percentage points. Mm-hmm. I need two ports. So that's what you need. I need two ports. I need I need to do something that controls muzzle rise, that offsets this eccentric, you know, line of force versus line of reaction. So I'm going to take one of those ports, and instead of being straight back, I'm going to tip it sideways. So when the gases hit the port, they're redirected up. Mm -hmm. So again, opposite reactions. That means the barrel stays down. (laughs) All right. And then, and then, so that addresses two of them. So now I've got recoil and muzzle rise, 
but I still have this twist. And so when you're sitting prone at a thousand, you shoot the targets, the sight picture just gets disrupted. And now you're looking, you know, 20 yards to the left. Yeah. Right. So how do I address that? So you take this same muzzle brake and now if you index it, it's just like lift on a wing. You're basically just your, your lift changes, your force of reaction changes. So now you've got this force that's redirecting gas here and then up. And if you break that down into a left-right vector and an up-down vector, so components of that force vector, you actually have a force vector that is pushing the barrel to the right now. So you take a look at our muzzle brake and you look at, it's just a, a simple indexing brake, two ports, it's got an angled baffle and when it's got a set of numbers there. So for your gun, for you and the way you shoot and the weight and the recoil, you essentially just start tuning that, indexing it left. Mm -hmm. And you index it left until when you shoot, the barrel ends up to the right. And then you back off just a little bit. And now you've tuned this so that when you shoot, the barrel comes straight back, stays down and allows you to follow that shot all the way to the target. Yep, which is there. This is very, very significant, (laughs) like very significant. Like I've made a lot of great long range shots. I've made even more second shots that were really great. Mm -hmm. Um, A miss over the shoulder. It's like it's a clean miss. You know, follow up real quick and make a shot. Right. Um, When you buy a system from Gunworks, is that done for you? Is it tuned? Yeah, everybody shoots differently. Sure. We'll send them out just a little bit off top dead center. Usually it's around 10 to 20 degrees. So somebody will have to go and through. And you know what's and crazy? Of... It's like this is one of those really cool things we do that I don't even know if I've we've done a video on it. Sure. Yeah. It's just there's so many Easter eggs that, and we just yeah. there's not enough time to talk about all of it or to show mm-hmm. all of it. But that's that's a pretty good one. And usually what happens as soon as we start talking about one of our really cool features, that's when everybody copies it. Hmm. So we started showing a lot of stock design and how our stock design promotes same kind of thing, control of that recoil impulse, like pretty quick, those features start showing up on everybody's oh, yeah, stuff. I've seen some of them. And it's like that cat's out of the bag. But the, the muzzle brake one's there as well. Okay, so now we've got this gun that's tuned perfectly and we've, we're managing our recoil. Now we change that to a suppressor. What's the trade-off? You have none of that directional control. Mm-hmm. You do change the recoil impulse. So it's there. It's different. It's really different. And so you do give up that ability that it's actually almost striking the difference, that ability to see and control that shot. So what do you have to do as a trade-off to get that and to get the sound suppression? You have to go up a little bit in weight on gun and you have to go down a little bit in cartridge size. So I shoot sevens. I don't shoot um, 300s. I don't shoot 28 nozzlers. I shoot like seven PRC, seven LRM, seven REMEC. Mm-hmm. So I have, I'm sized down a little bit and then I end up with a, you know, nine-ish pound gun. Yeah. And those are my trade-offs to get access to that suppressor. I've found, you know, I use a lot of electronics for a lot of years and that's great, but not everybody has them. I mean, you, I think I worked hard to get a deal on those and got them for like 800 bucks. That is a lot of scratch. So what usually happens is you have foamies. Mm-hmm. And heaven forbid you shoot without anything. But let's say the worst case is foamies mm-hmm. and everybody's got foamies. Well, when you're doing a long-range shot, the ability to communicate effectively is also an advantage. Yep, and huge. so when, you, when you're muzzle braked and you're plugged up and your guide's plugged up and your spotter's plugged up, hopefully they are, mm-hmm. and you're shooting, losing that that communication um, ease is just as 
I think, destructive to your abilities as losing the control of the muzzle brake. So, like, there's an advantage that you're getting back on the suppressor, which is this, like, you don't have to foam up. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have $800 or $2,000 electronic hearing protection. And you can still have that effective communication. There is a there is an animal awareness piece that's nice. Yeah. In some hunting situations, and a lot of them, it doesn't matter. Hopefully, your bullet's there before the sound, and it's a one-shot deal, and it's all done. So That's most of the time, be, yeah. it doesn't matter. But uh, it's all trade-offs. Yep. And you just have to choose which ones you have the most value for. I'm not a big 300 fan. I don't have a problem making that trade-off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, that's why I wanted to... That was the one question I was like, I really want to dive into this subject because I get a lot of questions about why I don't use a suppressor. And I would obviously... I've got, I've got a huge list of here's things that you can shop for to find out if your gunsmith knows what he's doing or if mm-hmm. he's just following market trends. Yeah. And more than three ports on a muzzle brake is on that list. Yeah. I think it also comes down to maybe people think it looks sexy. And it's like, like you said, it's not a marketing ploy. Three ports going to be better than two. You know, it looks big. It looks gnarly. But that's not how they sell it. Yeah. That's not how they're selling it. No. They're selling it. It's like the most, most. effective brake on the market. No. Does suppressor affect consistency or accuracy of a gun at all? Yes, and mostly because of, like, it can really screw it up. Like, if it's done wrong, it can absolutely destroy it. Hmm. But let's just assume that everybody that makes a suppressor does it right, and it's all good. So, no, from that aspect. When you hang a mass on the end of your barrel, you are you are absolutely changing the dynamics of that weapon. And we're, we're really, really big fans of, of not trying to make something that's a hot rod that requires this absolute perfect tuning to get this load that works in this gun with this bullet and this thing and this speed. And if, if you get outside of that, it just all blows up. Uh, our guns usually are very dead, let's say, harmonically. And so you can pretty much just about feed it anything and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine. Mm-hmm. So in that situation, hanging the uh, extra weight off there, again, it's, everything's kind of good, so it's just blah. Mm-hmm. A, a, a real picky gun that has these really distinct nodes of performance, um, and there's tons of reasons why this happens, but let's just, let's just say that there exists these two different states. That gun may actually really like hanging that weight off the end, you know, to kind of to deaden it up. And if you think about it... Um, if you fish, you have a fly rod, right? And so you're used to this, this harmonic, this wave that you can establish in a, in a fly rod. Imagine if you hung like a four ounce weight on the end of the tip. Like it just completely changes the dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. And it's going to dampen out those harmonic oscillations that exist in that weapon. And some of those harmonics actually exist when you shoot a gun. Most people don't realize what's going on when you shoot. But when you, when you drop that firing pin, motion starts happening. Right? Let's just say you're perfectly dead, like you as a shooter, you're completely steady. So when you break that, all of a sudden, this mechanical motion starts. So that firing pin's falling. That means there's a reaction. The whole gun pushes back just from that firing pin falling. So now you've got that reaction started. As soon as that firing pin hits the case, now you have that impact momentum. That causes reactions. Then the, fire, the, the primer fires, powder ignites. That starts this whole other thing. Bullet starts down the barrel. Barrel gun starts coming back. Like your gun's moving backwards while your bullet's still in the barrel traveling down the barrel. 
Like think of how many ways you can screw up your point of aim mm -hmm. with that. And that's why that consistent release is so important. Stock, so many things affect like from the, the bullet starting to move to the bullet leaving the muzzle. So if, if, if we look at the loads that exist on a normal rifle system, you got this recoil, like the, one of the biggest harmonic inducers is this bending moment that you, you're, you're pushing this barreled action back and the stock forward and it's pushing on this recoil lug and it's literally bending the joint, the barrel joint, and it's just like taking that fly rod and lifting it. You're putting this oscillation mm. into the barrel. And there's about six harmonic modes that gets established in a barrel and about two of them are fast enough that they happen while the bullet is still in the barrel. So if you think a lot of the oscillations are vertical, there are a few that happen like left and right. So you say you've got a gas port on one side of an action, but not on the other, the action actually stretches and it stretches differently because there's less material on this side. And so the, the, the bending moment of inertia is different. So now you've got this, this situation where it's mostly vertical, but there is some left or right. And if you think about, you map the muzzle, like the, just put a dot on the muzzle and you map that oscillation that establishes in that barrel before the bullet leaves, your barrel's moving just like this. It's like, it's, it's a wonder that we can even hit freaking targets sometimes, guys. It's yeah. a small movement. Yeah. So what, what these guys that have really sensitive guns, they have big movement, right? So there's big induced mm -hmm. harmonic. So it's not dead. It's a, it's a live system. So you have these big movements. Well, what they're doing when they try to tune a load is they try to get most of the bullets to leave when the barrel's up towards the top, top right? It's like throwing the softball in the air. Yep. At the top, for a moment, it's, it's steady. steady. Yep. So if you can get a, a, the consistent velocities and you can get it tuned so the velocity is timed about right to where that bullet's leaving every shot at the top, you'll get these good groups. But man, if something comes loose, you get a flyer on velocity or something, it'll, it'll happen down at the curve. And here at this oscillation, that barrel's really moving. So three shots that are pretty close in velocity could show a pretty big string. And that's where you get this string behavior from. Mm -hmm. You get all, all that stuff comes to this really simple concept of this movement. So shot load tuning, you know, putting masses on the end, it's going to change that oscillation behavior and deaden it a little. Now, if you go upstream and you address the systemic issues that cause that oscillation to start with, and let's just assume that it's theoretically possible to eliminate all of them. I don't know that it is, but let's say that you can get close to all of those eliminated. When you shoot, the barrel's just pointing downrange. And the benefit that you get from that is whatever you feed it kind of just behaves pretty consistently, pretty same. And because we've tried over the years to develop this system where we have ammo that we can sell you in the future that works with your system. Now, COVID and powder supply chain and Ukraine and all this stuff is really putting some pressure on us on this. But, but we've always done that. That's been our thing. And so we can make this ammo and every gun that comes off the line is shooting the same load, right? We don't have to hand load and tune a load for every gun, which is, which is literally what you get yeah. from every other mm -hmm. place that you go. Mm -hmm. And it, it is big. And a lot of it comes from, you know, making a dead system. Yeah. You know, some of it comes from uh, making a perfect chamber. You, you, here's, a, here's another one of those laundry list items. It's like one of them is an M16 extractor. If the action has an M16 extractor, it means that somebody doesn't quite know what they're doing and they're just following the trend, right? They think that's a cool thing, 
I think the factory Remington clip's actually a better extractor. Anyways, another thing. If you have a five-groove barrel, hmm. that's another one on the laundry list. If that's what you're advertising you have, then you are just a follower and you don't understand. Now, this is controversial. I would say, I'm not sure that you understand how to make a perfect chamber. You can probably make one that's pretty good, but why do you think guys have to tune, you set bullet lengths and tune loads when they build these guns? One of the reasons is because they're using a five landing groove barrel. Hmm. And I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not going to go into the details of why, but I'll tell you all the barrels that we make are four or six. Hmm. And some of the guys that are sharp will start thinking about that and they'll figure out what's going on there. And obviously we, we share everything that we do hmm. eventually. But we'll let we'll leave it there so that we don't get in another half hour discourse <laughs> on barrel making. But uh, a little Easter egg there. Yeah. You know, this yeah. has been so awesome. I've been geeking out the whole entire time. Definitely an education in all things guns. One that's over my head, for sure. Yeah. But you know, the but, cool thing is that's what we do. Like, sure. Yeah. We actually that's the we, reason you do it. we do that, and then all you know, you just do this, push this, yeah. do this. Yeah. Aim, shoot, dead. and that's a, and yeah. I, and I talk about that a lot. Just me personally, as a person, I don't know how to work on a snowmobile, but I can ride the shit out of one. You know, <laughs> yeah, like I don't know, I don't know any of the words and verbiage you guys are using and all that stuff. But I feel really comfortable when I get behind yeah. a gun. I think it just gives you the confidence to know that there is somebody like Aaron out there that knows the that doesn't sleep at all. Yeah. That, that, that knows only the, does this. Yeah, that yeah. knows the absolute ins and outs of everything mm-hmm. to do with that firearm. So that way, I mean, it just gives you the confidence. I mean, I, in regards to guns and building guns, I mean, and you and you yeah. don't have to you don't have to buy a gunworks rifle to get the benefits sure. of of our company because you look mm-hmm. at all the cool shit that's happened in long range, mm-hmm. and it's all come from us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets in the forefront of it. Well, it certainly yeah. seems easier too if you do. <laughs> You've got it figured out if you do buy from. Gunworks. No, there's so many cool gun builders, sure. and gun products. It's I love it. Like, sure. yeah, it's such a cool industry. Well, we appreciate your time. Yeah, really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thank Thanks for the invite. Yeah. The knowledge drop. Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, promo. Do you want to hit a promo? Just yeah. a short one real quick. Short Just one. Yeah. Use promo code podcast when you sign up for Insider, guys. So that's going to uh, give you 50 points back to the going gear shop. And like I was saying earlier, it's time to look at leftover opportunities, second draw stuff, you know, turn back tag things, and also being able to use Go Home apps in the field. So, yeah, the Insider Research Platform will give you everything you need to be successful right now and to pick up some tags and then do a bunch of, you know, e-scouting, take all the maps in the field, have a better fall. So promo code podcast will uh, save you big when you sign up and then buy some cool gear too at the same time. That's it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. <laughs>